the pyramid. I couldn't even draw it. So you see, underlying my stance against the establishment, my anti-war stance, my, my left-wing politics, and everything else, is a simple inability to understand orders. If orders are given to me, I try desperately to obey them and am unable, as a result, to even go through the simplest routine if, if I'm ordered to do it. Hey, dickheads! Like a pink laser beam of truth beaming straight from San Diego, California to your brain hole. We are your personal unpersons. <laughs> and maybe if your drugs start to wear off, you might start to remember our names. So, uh, joining me today is the uh, standard dickheads. Starting with Anthony, in case the folks are new, tell them who you are and what you do. So I am Anthony Trevino. I'm a writer, film critic, and uh, yeah, co-host of this cool podcast. And I'm David Agronoff, uh, author of Goddamn Killing Machines, Punk Rock Ghost Story, and the Splatterpunk Award-nominated Ring of Fire. And yeah, that's me, uh, co-host of this podcast. Also do a separate podcast called Postcards from a Dying World. That's it. Langhorn. I'm Langhorn J. Tweed. And today we are covering Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said. The 1970- What a 90s cover that is. Yeah. I know. 19- I know. I love those covers. The 1974 Philip K. Dick novel, our second or third novel of the 70s. Okay, so um, we're going to start with PKD news. And uh, the first bit of news is that he is still deceased. All right. Well, that is news because people might be wondering if there's, you know, we do have a PKD robot. You never yeah. know. So what is um, life? Yeah. The first bit of news is Pain, something. Pain, Larry. <laughs> That's the first bit of, sure. <laughs> the first bit of news Take three uh, <laughs> is that the PKD Film Fest is back and in person in New York City. So what? What are the dates? They are se- Friday, September seventeenth, Saturday, uh, the eighteenth, and then there will be a streaming vir- virtual festival on Sunday, September nineteenth. For those of us who are not in New York City. Yeah, this should be coming out that week. So. Oh, great. Okay, so the Philip and that's at the Philip K. Dick Film Festival.com. It's they're gonna have six features, 95 short films, 16 screenplay and graphic novel entries. Wow. Three virtual reality demonstrations. And these come from 21 different countries. So well that's a done. lot. Yeah, that's a lot. Well done, Dan and crew. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's uh, 120 official selections this year. So cool stuff. So uh, the next piece of, of interesting PKD news that came out-ish is the release of the Blade Runner Black Lotus trailer. For those of you who don't know, Black Lotus is a Blade Runner animated series that's coming to Adult Swim on the Cartoon Network. That we've been talking about for like two years now. Yeah, and so the first trailer was released, so we got our first look at it. Another TV series that kind of promotes the work of PKD and can can reach new people 
is is good. So I'm all for um, Black Lotus. I'm looking forward to watching it when when it comes out, and I'm sure we'll probably cover it here on the uh, podcast when it when it does. Anywho, that's all I've got on PKD News. Anything anything else you guys want to say about Black Lotus before we move on? No, but I do want to point out that if there are any animators that listen to this podcast, Eye in the Sky is would be a perfect private Cosmos animated movie. Yeah, that Just would be saying. killer. Yeah. But um, I do I, I agree with you, Anthony, that yeah. um, I would just like to see an Eye in the Sky adaptation that kind of fixes the... Oh, man, yeah, like a heavy metal kind of thing where the each animation style is different and... Yeah. Oh, yeah, for each private Cosmos? That would be perfect. That would be really cool. Or if you started in live action and then... I mean, yeah, anyway, there's so many ways you could do that and make it awesome, so... Yeah, and I would just love to see uh, an adaptation of Eye in the Sky fix the Don Wolheim fuckery, um, (laughs) which... I know, that's really a pet peeve of yours. (laughs) Well, I get... I understand why Don felt the way he did in the 50s, but... um, and why he made that decision. And I know it was really ace books kind of over him really pushing him to do it, but still. Yeah. Anyways. Okay. So flow my tears. The policeman said, this is a novel that was released in, I believe July or no, or it might've been earlier of 19 and 74. Hey, David, uh, what was happening? In 1974. Well, well it was popping, Larry, let me tell you. <laughs> the month, popping, the, the month that Flow My Tears, the policeman said, was released is the same month that in Berkeley, uh, heiress Patty Hearst was kidnapped outside her apartment. So, oh, yeah. All right. Um, I was, let's, let's keep the quotes on that one. Yeah. And um, I was also born that year. So, all right. Um, and Blazing Saddles was released to give you awesome. some, some movie um, connection to this book is as old as Blazing Saddles, nice. um, which is a movie. There's certain parallels there. <laughs> yeah. And Blazing, Blazing Saddles is a movie that could never be made today. Um, for sure. But uh, so let's talk about, let's get into the writing and publication history of Flow My Tears, the Policeman Set, which um, the first draft of this was written as far back as 1970, okay. uh, directly after our friend from Frolics 8. And before he worked on compiling a collection of PKD short fiction for Daw, for Don Wolheim's fledgling new um, company, Daw. Now, um, we have an interesting quote in the notes here um, about this collection that I think is interesting for the timing, just to, and also to give people a little context of the relationship that, that um, Phil had with Daw in the 70s. Donald Wilhelm wrote to me and said, I'd like to do a collection of your stories. I said, I'm sorry, Don, but I'm going through my stories to sell to Ballantyne right now. He wrote back and said, well, Betty, Betty Ballantyne was still editor. Betty and I have different tastes. Give me what Betty doesn't want. And that's exactly what he got. Wilhelm read them over and became hysterical. He said, these are Betty Ballantyne rejects. I says, Don, that's what we contracted for. He says, well, the stories aren't very good. And I said, yeah, 
and the price ain't very good either. He published them, <laughs> but he was grumpy about it. That's my Wilhelm story. <laughs> yeah, I know that's not flow my tears directly, but I, th- I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that's, that's a good quote. <laughs> yeah. So um, we are in the thick also in the early drafts of Flow My Tears uh, um, in Divorcepedia. So this was the time when Nancy um, was leaving with uh, baby Issa. And so there was a lot of drug abuse during this time, a lack of money. There was a lot going on with, with the drugs and being sick a couple times and this is when nancy left and i believe what gail talked to us about with the um with the waving a gun around outside this was around yeah this is around the time of um when he wrote the first draft it was september 1970 when nancy left phil so i believe that the first draft was started because he talks about how he wrote the first 140 pages in a like kind of fever pitch. And I think that happened before Nancy left and then the rest was finished after. But then by the time he was with Tessa, he had done close to 11 drafts of this novel, which with right. a typewriter, um, that's, that's a lot of serious work. So that would explain why it took four years to go from when he started to when he finished it. And also why it's dedicated to Tessa. Right. Now, uh, four years for, for most writers to work on a novel is not that strange, but we know that we've seen PKD, um, you know, put out novels in a shorter time than most crust punks change their underwear. So um, we, we know that he can write quick and, he just didn't this time. And that's because I believe mostly because a lot of the events that inspired Scanner Darkly also happened during this era. There really was no point in writing. As a matter of fact, when you conceive of how you write, one writes by going off into privacy alone. One hour of solitude would have meant my demise. After Nancy left with my little girl, it was too risky. I had to be with people. I flooded the house with people. Anybody was welcome because the sound of their voices, the sound of their activity, the din in the hall, anything, it kept me alive. I literally was unable to kill myself then because there was too much going on. Awesome. PKD's getting bleak. That is awesome. That's relatable to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, and so it's obvious that this, like, the, all the events that inspired Scanner Darkly happened in this era. Then he was just like, hey, hey, if you've got drugs or whatever, you want to come over. <laughs> or, you know, and um, there was a while where the rumor was that I'm sure with a lot of junkies and drug addicts in the area was that Phil's house was a house that you could hang out at and you could score. So um, th- this was a thing that happened. And then in 1971, um, the, there was a for, for, foreclosure on his house, and he gave an early manuscript to his lawyer for safekeeping, which is very important. Now, if anyone... Sorry, has, David, I, I just have one question. Sorry to break your flow, but... Uh, no, no. Where, where is he at at this point? Is he in Fullerton, or...? No, he had not made it to Orange County. Oh, okay. So he's still up in San Francisco. He's still in uh, the Berkeley. Bay Area believe Berkeley. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so this book by Paul Williams is where a lot of the details of this 
time come from the only apparently real world of Philip K. Dick. These are the interviews that Paul Williams did to make the basis of his Rolling Stone piece, which is what really kind of put Phil on the map. Hmm. This book is for PKD essential people only because this is basically like him. This is the transcript. A lot of this is the transcript of the interviews that he did about this time in this period. And it's a lot of monotonous talk about the, the break in that, uh, which we have a quote coming up here about, but if you really want details, like to an insane level of, (laughs) of detail about this period and when he was writing it, this book like really gets into details about almost almost uncomfortable details about everything to do with the breakup and this time. So that's there. Anthony, well, the David, next- at some point, I want to take a look at that. So yeah, um, I don't want to. I don't want to own it. I just want to take a look at your copy. <laughs> um, remind me, I'm coming to your neighborhood next week. I will drop off a copy. Awesome. Yeah, I got to get my bike tuned up. So, um, so, uh, PKD talked to Paul Williams about this. So we have a quote. My most recent novel, Flow My Tears, the Policeman Said, deals with the USA as a total police state, as you may know. What most readers of SF do not know is that it was actually written back in 1970, not 72 or 73 as generally believed. I wrote the novel and then placed the manuscript, the sole copy, in my lawyer's safe to protect it. In 1971, my house was broken into, and my files blown open, and most of my business documents, records, and written notes were stolen. I remain convinced to this day that it was an agency of the U.S. federal government which did this. We have just learned, for example, that the FBI alone conducted 1,500 such illegal burglaries. What most frightens me is to think what might have happened had they found the manuscript to Flow My Tears, a book which so well depicts their own activities in nature. I'm sure it wouldn't have even been published. It is even possible that it was the particular manuscript which they were seeking uh, that such events could have happened here. Now, I love the idea of the FBI reading Flow My Tears, the policeman said, and like being like, oh shit, he's on to us. I don't think that would be the reaction of the FBI, but I could be wrong. But yeah, yeah. Paranoid time, though. I mean, this is after, after, after Nixon and all that, so... So at, we've we've read close to 18 novels, I think, now. And we've been talking about PKD. God, we've been doing this podcast for, what, three years, four years? Yeah, yeah. it's been a um, long time. Do we, and I forgive me if I'm, if I'm just forgetting, did we ever discuss what the event was that really landed him under the scrutiny of the FBI? Well, I, I really can't remember. Is that later? It's, is there, I don't think there's any evidence to him being... No, 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 there is. There is. A lot of people think that it's that he did it to himself, that he sure, called sure. them He called them to um, to basically talk about other writers. And it's one of the reasons why um, there was a rift between him and Ursula Le Guin is because, for example, there was a bunch of science fiction writers who signed a letter against the the Vietnam War. It's the thing that led Judith Merrill to leave the country altogether and move to Canada. And, and um, so there was a bunch of controversy over a couple, I think Phil was involved in one of the people who, who was like, Hey, like some of these writers are communists and, 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 and so I could be wrong about that, but the theory is, is that Phil contacted the FBI himself in like one of his states to say 
to talk about now here's where it gets really ugly and this isn't only apparently real is this that, is in it, this is in flow my tears i mean that's like almost verbatim yeah. is it, you make yourself known to the police you're going to get fucked yeah yeah exactly <laughs> don't don't go out there and be like hey i'm o- yeah i'm over here i'm just letting you know about this other guy because they're just gonna keep yeah, looking right. at you <laughs> so he had black radical neighbors and okay. the attention that he was paying to them and he believed that their the attention that them getting their neighborhood on the radar is what led to this in combination with the penultimate truth that he believed that the penultimate truth was the book that you know so exposed the fascist government <laughs> that that the combination of these neighbors and so what exactly it was that did it like i i think that would be a better question for david gill you know than than, than me but um, oh, when we start running out of book episodes we're going to start taking deep dives into these with the other guys then <laughs> yeah. oh, speaking of, speaking of book episodes anthony this is the 29th book episode so We've done 29 books. Yeah. Yeah. We've done 29 books. Yeah. Yeah. I need a to lot of sit books. down. <laughs> I, 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 I need a drink. Anyway, <laughs> go on. Okay, so on that note, um, the reason why I think Gil would be a better source for that, for, for, for a number of reasons. One, just how well he knows GKD's life, but also he knows Berkeley and knows, like he would know the exact address of, the house he was yeah, living right. in and all that stuff. So um, we come at this from a storyteller perspective. Gil knows a lot more about PKD's life in general. So Which, real quick, not to, not to, to derail the conversation further. I think that the way you just phrased that, David, that we come at it, at it from a storyteller's perspective, I think really does color how I view the, a lot of these books. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, totally. Now, and, and that's the thing is some people read PKD because of Gnostic feelings that they get, like they want like the concepts more than the stories. And we're, we come and at it. Some of them read it for Jungian theory. <laughs> yeah. Some of them read it for a lot of different things. And I think one of the reasons why we have a different perspective is because we always look at this from a storytelling perspective, yeah. period. And I, we've said that before on the podcast, but and we said it on Simulation Nature. Yeah, it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a little different on this one for me, but yeah, it's not. So, well, yeah, so we'll get there. <laughs> yeah, the Scott Meredith Literary Agency received a completed manuscript on February seventh, nineteen seventy three. Hmm. On April sixth, nineteen seventy three, Dick learned that Doubleday had accepted the novel. That was quick. Um, and a few days later, he received a letter from his editor at Doubleday, Diane Cleaver, telling him how much she liked the book, but offering a few editorial suggestions. Now, um, I did uh, research Cleaver a little bit, um, hoping maybe to get her on the podcast, but she died in 1995. So, well, um, you can't get her. <laughs> so David was like, whoops. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, she died at 53 years old, and she was only oh, 32. She was 32 years old when she wow. edited "Flow My Tears." So she was a young editor. Um, and so one thing that people give a lot of gruff to PKD is his 
treatment of women, obviously, but um, he treated uh, Diane Cleaver with a lot of respect. And um, however, she wanted to cut the section between Ruth Ray and JT, um, which were published under the title, The Different Stages of Love by the PKD Society newsletter in 1992. So that was put back, or that was published later, but it was a section that um, that he cut at her direction. Wait, so that that's, okay, so that's extra stuff that's not in the novel? That's not in the novel, yes. Okay. What Phil said was uh, in a letter to Sandra Meisel, I believe it's pronounced... Measle, I, I, Meisel, I, um, in August. Measle, Schmeisel. <laughs> I'm going to get hammered for it anyways. It doesn't matter. <laughs> so in August of 74. Now, one of the other things about this time period in 1974, and I have an entire index and a book of the letters of 1974. Phil did not write a lot of fiction during 1974, but he wrote the shit out of some letters oh, yeah. in 1974. So it's a correspondence here. Nice. It's a correspondence year. There are letters all over the place. That's why there is a bazillion quotes about this book. And I didn't even come close to using them all for the notes. Because um, Anthony would have murdered you. He would have been very <laughs> upset. And this episode would have been four hours long. But right. there are... Of just quotes. <laughs> of just quotes. Because there are a lot of letters that address Flow My Tears. And it's also because if you figure in that... Um, March is when he was having the pink laser beam experience, which, by the way, was happening the day I was born. Um, uh, I, well, do wanna, I do want to say that. flex, David. I do want to say, just to pimp our, our Patreon a little, David's uh, notes are accompanying every early version of the episodes. So you can see how much work David put into doing these notes if you pay a dollar and get on the Patreon. There you go. Which is it, something I didn't know. I thought the Patreon was exclusively a way to, to fund me going to do things. Yeah. <laughs> and you should know it that. Does if do you that as well. Things if that you, are related to the podcast, not just me going to get coffee. Everybody put your tweets away and calm down. <laughs> All right. What were you saying, David? And you should know that if you read the notes that I make no effort to make have them make any sense to anyone besides me. <laughs> No, but if yeah. you follow the, the follow right. along with the notes and watching the show, it actually you can it get something it. out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, in this letter to Sandra, now there's a ton of letters to Sandra during this year. So there's so throughout, and he talks a lot about his career. So throughout this podcast, we've we've quoted the, these letters to her many many times. I've just finished the rough draft of a new long SF novel. Blow my tears, the policeman said. I reworked it and reworked it. I rewrote the final section seven times, plus my holographic changes. At one point in the writing, I wrote 140 pages in 48 hours. All right, I have high hopes for this book. It is the first really new thing I've done since Eye in the Sky. The change is due to a change that overtook me from having taken mescaline, a very large dose that completely unhinged me. I had enormous insights behind this drug, all having to do with whom I, with those whom I loved, love, and will love. All right, PKD. All right, so there's a lot to unpack in this quote. <laughs> I, I love that he calls the novel long. Yeah. yeah if only that's the way it was today. Instead of seven thousand pages, yeah, it's definitely not like Game of Thrones long, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> or Stephen King long, right? Uh, um, so first, I want to 
unpack the thing that he says it's the first really new thing he's done since I in the sky. I, I'm actually I'm I kind of agree with him on on that. Not not maybe I in the sky long, but you know, but it's definitely new. Yeah, it's interesting because I would say that I do think he's done new things in between then. Yeah, yeah, like Man in the High Castle and right, yeah, exactly, and a few things. But I do think it's valid to point out that he he knows he's repeating themes because I, I a lot of times, you know, like when we had the reaction that Ubik wasn't that totally mind bending to us because we had already read Eye in the Sky, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, and I think. Ubik as a novel is more is more impressive to the people who read it early in in their PKD reading. Whereas we we've seen him do the personal cosmos thing like multiple times now and done it better. in, for example, three stigmata where and, and it's different because in three stigmata, it doesn't take up the whole novel. Right. It's just part of it. A portion. Yeah. It's a portion of it. Whereas I in the sky and Ubik, it's like almost all of it. Right. And so for him to say that I haven't really done anything like super new since I in the sky is interesting Do either. So Larry, you kind of said that Anthony, how do you feel about this idea that he's saying this is the most original thing he's done in a long time? I think to him, he probably believes that and feels that way, but I actually thought galactic pot healer was a little bit more fun and original, at least in terms of, of Dick trying new and different things. Sure. Um, Sure. Uh, so so I don't I don't I don't know I'm not trying to yuck PKD's yum about you know being excited about his <laughs> new book I just I just he's doing something that I've seen him do before mm-hmm. in better ways and in uh, the books in between for me I I feel like when he says I'm doing something new and interesting to me that means I'm trying new things out and it's working or it's not working so like even though I didn't care that much for a maze of death I would say a maze of death and galactic pot healer are two books that are a little bit more nuanced in their strangeness and 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 approach to trying to do something a little bit different whether or not it works is open to well, some i mean even even vulcan's hammer right is yeah that, yeah you know or, that's just uh, a pure sci-fi story so it's not it's not exploring any you know yeah in his mind though, Val- themes. in his mind vulcan's hammer would would have been earlier than i in the sky because he wrote it so long before but I, was but, penultimate truth before or I after I in the sky? I can't remember. Way after. Way after. See, so I, I I thought penultimate truth was 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 a lot of fun. So yeah, I know. Yeah, you really like that one. Yeah. And I don't. I'm not saying he's talking about quality here. I think he's thinking no, about no. Ori- originality. Yeah, of, like, well, right. And, and I understand that. I just think that literarily. I think the books in between were more original. I think Galactic Pot Healer is way more original than this book. Mm. Sure. Well, in terms of in terms of PKD in his writing and what he does, this was not PKD doing something I haven't seen him do before. Ooh, yeah, we'll get into that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> right. I think I think you're gonna get disagreement from from uh, the peanut <laughs> gallery fine. here. Okay, so so w- let's talk about this mescaline thing. <laughs> now um, that's a that's a drug I never got to do. So I, I feel bad about that. Not That's also one I've never gotten to do. Experience. Well, we know <laughs> I didn't. But so, my mom, um, my mom did mescaline a lot when she was a teenager, and uh, it's for her it was a little more clean than what he. Way to out mom. But she, you know, she. It was more akin to LSD, but they were doing 
back when they were doing this, this is the same era. It was large amounts that people don't even understand the amount of drugs they were doing back then. So when he says it was a big dose, it's a big dose. <laughs> now, does that give you energy or is it just you're just tripping balls in, in your chair? It's, uh, this is, uh, again, secondhand because that's the only way I know it. But uh, my mom was so high and hallucinating so much that she saw a giant chicken that used to be in North Park that was above a, a, a building uh, just step down onto the street and walk away. Okay. And uh, she that's the only part of like a 10-hour trip that she remembers. <laughs> All right. So we it, it sounds like what he's doing here is that he was on this mescaline and he was having all these like visions about his interactions with people. And this is during the time when he had the Scanner Darkly crew like all kind of hanging around his house. So and there is one particular vision, which we'll come back to later, which is the one that kind of set off the whole thing. And it's partially because later on, PKD claimed to have actually lived this moment in real life that made that like added to his like, oh, my gosh, I'm a prophet um, kind of thing going on. Um, and it's a scene that ended up in the novel. With acid, I never had any genuine insights, but on mescaline, I was overwhelmed by terribly powerful feelings. Emotions, I guess. I felt an overpowering love for other people, and this is what I put into the novel. It studies different kinds of love, and at last ends with the appearance of an ultimate kind of love, which I had never known of. I'm saying, in answer to this question, what is real, the answer is this kind of overpowering love. Yeah, and then, so... Yeah, to, uh, to most people, to straight people like you, David, it would be like it's hard to tell the difference between like a, a mescaline high or an LSD high or a mushroom high. But all those things have their subtle differences sure. that, are, that are huge when you're when you're having that trip. So like him saying that he had a, a completely different experience with that and LSD makes perfect sense. So mescaline was popular during this era, and it's not now. So what what happened to mescaline? I mean, just like, do you have any idea? I don't. I don't. Uh, no, I, I. Let me call Cody. Yeah, uh, mescaline's <laughs> still available. I mean, it's not. It hasn't gone away or anything like that. But it's a, a it's a natural thing. So. <laughs> yeah, Cody would have actually been a great person <laughs> yeah. for this episode. Yeah. It's uh, a, it's a, akin to peyote. That's that's my phone a friend for this one. <laughs> Uh, I just call my mom. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, okay, let's let's move on from that. So, <laughs> so for for Phil, this overpowering love was this this thing, and I think probably this is if you think about where he's at in Divorcepedia, he's feeling disconnected. He's his he misses his daughter. He wants to be a good father, but he's fucked up on drugs and he has all these people over. And so he's probably feeling this. He wants this connection. He said that that's what, why he had people over. I, I want this connection. I want to hear voices. I want to feel people. So I'm sure his brain plus mescaline translated into this like hippy dippy like 
feeling of like, I want to feel and experience love, which I think there's a way to read this book where you could totally miss that. <laughs> like if, yeah, but he mentioned, I mean, he mentions that type of experience three different times in the book. So Right, right. I'm just, I, I think it's obvious and it's clear and it's there. But what, what I'm saying is, is that like I've read articles where people are talking about this book and they don't, that all they focus on is the police state and all that stuff. Really? Okay. Yeah. That, yeah, that's. It's a bad reading okay. of it. <laughs> it's a bad reading of it, but that's <laughs> it generally. It, I'm saying the first thing that people go to is the police state when they they look at the surface level of this book. But it's clear that a lot of his driving force in 1970 when he started it was this vision and this idea of the overpowering love and wanting to kind of express this um, kind of uh, universe slipping experience with it. They say I have to say what reality is, and I never had any intention of doing that. And the reason that I never had any intention of doing that is that I don't know. I have no knowledge at all of what reality is. All I can do is plaintively inquire, hey, gang, what is really real? And then, there, and then here's Terry Carr, the great anthologizer and a major figure in the field, and he says, all right, and he blows on his little whistle like the recreation director at camp has. All right, time to write about what reality is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I have a feeling somewhere along the way, Terry Carr was like, I want to understand what exactly happened in this novel more. I don't know if he read a draft of it or turned down a draft of it. Um, Terry Carr was obviously, he was his editor at Ace with Wolheim. So I, he wasn't the editor on this book, so I don't know where it came from. But what I think he's trying to say here is that since reality slips throughout this book, he never had any intention of, like, I don't think he cared say, explaining any of that. Didn't matter to him. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so, like, this whole explanation at the end with the drugs, I have a feeling that he was told, hey, you got to put some explanation about, like, why he's slipping realities. When I think the original draft, and this is just a guess, but I'm thinking in the early drafts of Flow My Tears, there was, like Man in the High Castle, no explanation. I I tend to agree with you. I, I, I don't think there even needed to be a, nope. an explanation. I think That's Man in the High Castle is about. Yeah. Man in the High Castle is stronger because Tagomi, when he travels to and from the other universes, you don't know why it's happening. And it does not matter. Yeah. It does not matter. And and I think for Tavener the explanation is one of the weaker things in the book. Yeah. And if, if we never really knew or understood why, I think that would lose some readers, but I think for me, it would have been a better book. So, um, potentially, and, yeah, potentially. Yeah. I mean, it's I'm not, not to say, you know, and, um, you know, so I, I like this idea that PKDs is like, you know, I don't really need or want to say what reality is. So, um, so another quote from letters, <laughs> damned if I know, and he's, he was asked about what the reality is in Flow My Tears, I believe. Damned if I know, but I thought I'll fake it. So in 1970, I started working on Flow My Tears, the policeman said, and it was my intention to resolve the problem by the discovery of what reality really was. So that meant there was a three year ellipsis in my writing. 
Yeah. So I, I just think that adds further credence to what we were saying is just that like, after three years, like I think that's in the further drafts is when he was like trying to to put that stuff in there. So right. yeah, yeah. Um, that just I, I don't know. I don't have much to say else about that. I just think that <laughs> adds credence to that. So the next quote. Yeah, well. Yeah, well, I just sort of sat there at the typewriter. I did eleven drafts of that novel. I mean, literally. I'm not using that as hyperbole. I had a complicated code system worked out so I wouldn't start feeding old drafts back in, which Kate, which in in which case I guess I'd still be there today. <laughs> well, no wonder PKD had a stroke. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I, that's that's true. I mean, I I for a short time I wrote on a typewriter like that, and you. You really do have to keep piles of different things separated because there's no way to tell the difference. Especially if you were like looking at one draft. And you're doing this over years. I can't even imagine. Yeah, uh, Laird Barron just tweeted something the other day about how, hey, I used to write on a typewriter and anybody who's glorifying those fucking days can shut the hell up. <laughs> you know, it was like, yeah, no, it wasn't easy. <laughs> that sounds yeah. like a nightmare. As a, yeah. as a, as a kid yeah. who grew up with... Like, I mean, I always wrote notebooks, but then I got a computer later. Like, no, thank you. You can keep your typewriter. Yeah, right. <laughs> that sounds overly complicated. Yeah. So one of our all-time favorite PKD letters was, of course, the one uh, around the time of the Three Stigmata where with the um, the the dog ate my homework letter about... Oh, right, yeah. And that, like... I can't get my car out of Hawk unless I start getting paid for this. So um, we've got a progress report letter. I want to give you a progress report on my new novel, Flow My Tears. I have now read over the rough draft, revised several scenes, added more material, and built up the ending so that is more effective. And then I have read the novel once again with all these changes. I think it's the best SF novel ever written. <laughs> Certainly it is the best thing I've ever done, and I've no idea as to how I managed to do it. At one point in 48 hours, I wrote 140 pages. At other times, I revised one sole passage again and again, in one case seven times, until I had what I wanted. There will be no further changes in the novel when I go to do the final draft. The novel is done. And then PKD had to go, like, take a three-day nap. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's a pretty intense description of of writing it wow. um, just think about being an editor though for a second let's just think about this if i get a if, if i get a, a note and my writer says oh yeah i wrote 140 pages in 48 hours i'd be like dog that's not gonna be you, very good <laughs> yeah you i need you to reread re some of that please so <laughs> so uh we get into next kind of stuff that we're going to talk to talk to everybody about is the uh esp and pink laser beam stuff because Around the time that this novel came out is when this stuff really kicked into gear. So this book came out in 1974, and the the pink laser beam situation happened March 18th through March 20th of 1974. And really, uh, there was that was when the major Valis download happened. Um, I believe the first like reflection might have happened in February, but it was during this time. So we but have a that, lot of, at that point, the book was already written, right? Or is he still, it was, it was long written, but it's to do with the release time. And 
Mm. So a lot of the knowledge that we get about this book is that a lot of people were reacting to Flow My Tears at the same time he was going through the ballast thing. Mm. So it's released into the world. It gets nominated for awards, fills back. But at the same time, after years of not publishing, like it'd been two years since We Can Build You, right? That was the last one we did. We Can Build You. Yeah. Um, uh, it was two years since We Could Build You, which was written many years before. So, and everyone knew that. So this was a big Phil's back kind of moment. And yeah. you can't really divorce the reaction to Flow My Tears and all the discussion that's happening in the letters with the fact that he thought a vast intelligence system in space was downloading thoughts from God directly to his brain at the same time. In my opinion, yeah, that's yeah. kind of important <laughs> to the Flow My Tears story. That precognitive thing in my novels has really spooked me. It's really there. You can see how I would become aware of it in direct proportion to the number of books I wrote. If there was such a factor, the more I wrote, the more I'd begin to notice this. Yeah. Um, so this is it's just okay. a very important thing that's going on there. And uh, keep going, Anthony, with the, the idea that the idea that seized me 27 years ago and never let go is this. Any society in which people meddle in other people's business is not a good society and a state in which the government knows more about you than you know about yourself. As it as it's expressed in Flow My Tears is a state that must be overthrown. It must be a theocracy, theocracy a fascist corporate state or reactionary monopolistic capitalism or centralistic socialism. That aspect doesn't matter. And I'm saying, and, <clears throat> excuse me, and I am saying not merely it can happen here meaning the United States, but rather it did happen here. I remember I was one of the secret Christians who fought it and to at least some extent helped overthrow it. Okay, so there's a lot going on here. This is the first time since maybe Penultimate Truth and that whole 1964 era where we're getting like, we're getting super political fill. So, um, because he's been kind of, I mean, doing Android's Dream and those books have political aspects to it, yes. but this is the first time in a long time that he's getting way into it, like way into the political stuff. And so he also went on to say that he spent four to eight hours a day doing research, trying to understand how this police state would work. I don't know how, you know, what that looks like, but, um, but he was really thinking this world out. And so uh, this is from another letter. If I were to detail that world, it would be completely congruent with the world in Flow My Tears. Then I asked myself, does this explain where the corpus of my writing comes from? And the answer is yes. The entire corpus of my writing deals with a landscape, a kind of world which is somewhat like ours and somewhat different. And all my books interrelate. Ursula Le Guin pointed that out that all my books seemed to take place on a particular alternate world. And in 1974, I actually remembered being in that world. Some of the technology was more advanced than ours, like in my books. They made great use of advanced hydraulics, for instance. Yeah, but was there an auto-auto? That's what I want to know. <laughs> or a flip-flap? Yeah. I like the flip-flap. <laughs> the flip-flap. Uh, it was a ghastly garrison state. Oh, sorry, I didn't realize that was... I thought that was a whole new quote. 
but it was a ghastly garrison state with, with forced labor camps. And in that other world, I was an active political revolutionary. I was not just a passive opponent of the establishment. I remember we blew up a big fortress, a big prison. Actually blew it open like you'd blow open a safe. I remember being pursued by the authorities. The establishment was just like it, was shown to me in Flow My Tears. In that world, all civil rights movements have failed. Most amazing of all, Christianity was outlawed. Whoa, so he's full on, he was like full on revolutionary Phil in this other world wearing a beret and leading right. the resistance. Yeah. <laughs> blow, blow shit up. Um, I'm surprised no one's made a, a shirt that's just like the, the Che Guevara shirt. Yeah, Che Guevara. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Get on it, listeners. <laughs> right. <laughs> we'll, we'll buy one. Oh. Um, with uh, Flow My Tears, a policeman said underneath it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting that he's like, and he's kind of talking about a more exciting story. Um, <laughs> True. In, in this one, like with like revolutionaries and all this stuff. And it's just, you know, this idea that we blew up this big fortress and all this stuff. It's it's very interesting stuff that he's talking about as far as saying that he like remembered it. Yeah. Know? Like he was in the second civil war that he portrays in the book. Yep. Yep. And so it's kind of like this book takes place after these events that he kind of said that he remembers. Yeah. And exactly. And it's funny because like, you know, as writers, a lot of times when we're sitting around in our quiet moments, like we'll run movie, like movies in our head or, or stories in our head. And what I think is going on for Phil is that when he does that, it, it, like it, it, it's almost like he's saying, like, I remembered that. It right. didn't just I didn't make it up in my head. I remember yeah. that. Right. Like, and maybe he did feel that he remembered it, but it's just that's anyways. Um. So um, this, uh, the title from the book comes from an opera, which uh, we know that Phil was a big opera guy, and he and that's what he and Tony Boucher originally uh, bonded on when Boucher would come in looking for opera rec records in his store, in the record store he worked in, and and we uh, know he hates Wagner, <laughs> right. And um, he refers to, there's a line towards the end of the book where he refers to the opera as the, in the book, he says it's the first abstract music ever written. So the title is a reference to Flow My Tears from the 16th century composer John Dowland. But um, obviously I don't know squat about opera. I listened to it. A recording of it being performed at some point. Um, not a fan. Um, and uh, uh, as as someone that worked in opera for five years, I can say, uh, yep, yep, it's a thing. Um, yeah, so it's 16th century, you know, original piece, and uh, but it was obviously very inspiring to Phil. And all the sections of the book, the four the four parts, begin with quotes from from this this opera. So um, it's important to him and we're, I, I'm glad it influenced him, but uh, I will never listen to it again. So um, that's not an opera guy. So uh, there are some good operas, but not, not as many as there should be. All right. So that's a lot about the writing and publication history. Yeah. Uh, this, this is the last thing I would say is that this was, 
Um, Ursula Le Guin nominated it for the Nebula, and it won the John W. Campbell Award, which is the award um, given by academics, mm-hmm. science fiction that academics. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, and it was, I think it was nominated for the Hugo, but it was, this was Phil back on the map because he had been kind of out in the wilderness. The only book he had published in a couple of years was We Can Build You, which obviously was not super sci-fi. And um, it should have been called We Can Build You for this therapy session of reading your goddamn book. (laughs) God. (laughs) Cha-ching. Sorry, David. I gotta say, that's a pretty clever joke. But <laughs> thank um, you. Yeah, so uh, man, the, I, I don't know. This the the award nominations were a big deal for Phil because I think after like the tough divorce from Nancy and uh, the the how bad the drugs got for a couple years, uh, I think you know it's it right. cannot be understated how important Flow My Tears was for for Phil to move on but that's it for the writing publication history anything else you guys have on on this topic or are we um or is it <clears throat> do we have to clear our throats here anthony yeah i think it's time <clears throat> larry is it time time for what are we breaking something down all right so here is my book report on Flow My Catcher in the Policeman Said Rye, a.k.a. Alice in Reverse Wonderland, a.k.a. The Prince is a Popper without an actual popper being there. Uh, so we start with this guy, Jason Taverner, Taverner, which is what it was said on the uh, audiobook was Taverner. But I like Taverner better. Uh, he's a dick but he's a very confident dick. He's a movie star. Well, TV star technically, but he has that movie star attitude. So loves having people below him that worship him. Loves being the king of the world. Just has the best life you can imagine. Has houses all over the world. Has women constantly wanting him. Can do whatever he wants. Never has to worry about being poor, being sad, anything. He is basically leading the best life anyone has ever led. I mean, his, his girlfriend is one of the most beautiful women in the world. Everyone worships her. Everyone worships him. But he's also banging this, uh, this thing on the side, right? This, this girl on the side. And uh, kind of uh, ruining her life in the process by giving her false promises and, and uh, just basically treating her like trash. So one day he's uh, in his limousine with his beautiful girlfriend, his beautiful actress, singer, girlfriend. And uh, the, the other woman calls and says, hey, I need to talk to you in person. It's really important. Won't take long. It's going to be really fast. I promise. So he's like, oh. <laughs> No big deal for me. I'll go handle this because I handle everything because I'm a genetic six, which means that he believes that the world revolves around him, that he is superior to everyone because he has certain genetic advances. 
And uh, so he goes to talk to this girl, and she doesn't really want to talk. What she wants to do is shove a space octopus onto his chest and kill him. So he uh, he ends up getting the space octopus stuck to his chest. He's a six, so he reacts quickly, and he manages to get uh, get it to a state where he can actually escape and live. He wakes up in the hospital and he's like, oh, man, that was terrible. But uh, you're going to fix it, right? And his uh, famous girlfriend's like, yeah, sure, no problem. They're going to do what they can do and you'll be fine. But then he wakes up again in a really bad tenement hotel, motel, you know, one of those places where there's only one bathroom for an entire floor. You just have a room and it's terrible and. It's dirty, and he, so he's this rich guy in a beautiful silk suit with a wad of money. In watts, I believe it is in watts. He's in, he's in watts. <laughs> and he, uh, he's like, all right, this is fine. This is fine. I don't know how this happened, but I'm sure everything will be okay. So he goes and... He makes some phone calls to the people he knows, and everyone he knows says, I don't know who you are. Why are you calling me? Never call this number again. And uh, so he realizes, wait a second, maybe I'm a nobody now. And how can I be a nobody? Because I'm Jason Taverner. I have 30 million fans that see me every Tuesday night on NBC, one of the three stations. He zips his fly up every week. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so he's so he he goes to the to the front desk where there's this uh, weird sort of scrawny guy that is pretty distasteful in general, and says, "I've got five hundred dollars here that says that you can take me to somewhere that can fix my shit." So he's like, "What? What do you need?" Well. I don't have any ID. I need to have ID because we live in a police state, which is because there was a civil war with uh, smart people and we didn't like the smart people. So we just sort of uh, made them go underground or put them in these camps because much like, you know, Cambodia, we went the whole Pol Pot route where it's just a police state. And he's like, oh, oh, all right. So I know someone that can help you out. And they drive through Watts. And they have this conversation that's really might have been explored more, but then maybe shouldn't have been there at all, where we find out that the government is slowly killing black people by reducing their uh, population by half every generation. And our supposed six hero, uh, he's all for it. Just like, yeah, I'm, Black, black people disappearing sounds perfect to me. And we're supposed to just take that in our stride. But uh, anyway, so we get to this, this rundown, like, uh, old restaurant or something. And there's a secret passages, and it looks like it's going to be real exciting. He goes to this back room where this uh, young girl is the ID maker. And she seems a little weird, but he's attracted to her because she's young and, and vibrant and uh, kind of weird. And he likes that kind of weird vibe she's given off. 
And so he gets his IDs. The girl also is like, well, she doesn't really know he's a six or anything, but she's more like, you're a 10, and says, stay with me. Stay, just stay the night, and uh, we'll, we'll have a little fun. You know, We'll do a little dancing, a little nightlife, and then we'll go back to my place, and we'll get down and boogie. And so that's the plan, and he's not really into it, because she also says she has a husband who's in one of the camps and the the what are they called? They're not death camps. They're forced labor camps. Forced labor camps. Thank you. Uh, and so they do. They they hang out that night. They have adventures. Uh, it seems like she is absolutely a nutbag because she. She breaks down and has these uh, this fit when they're in a bad Italian restaurant, and he's like, "All right, I got to get away from this girl. I, I just can't. I can't do this." And so he tries to get away from her. Doesn't work. He finds out that her IDs work. And it's great. That's great for him. But other than that, he's forced to go back to her and be like, "All right, I can't really function on my own, even though I'm a six. I don't really know what I'm doing because." All of my experience is being rich and being awesome. And now my rich and awesome doesn't seem to matter. So they go back to his place and there's this cop there, this really kind of, I don't know. You remember the, re- the original Batman and there was the, the fat, the fat detective, you know, back in 1990, the fat detective guy. Oh, see, That's I was the, when you said original, I went back to yeah, no, no, the nineteen ninety one, yeah. Uh, uh, Inspector McNulty reminds me of that detective guy, just sort of like into his job, but not really into his job. Just wants to, like, just wants to bust people. That's his his entire life. His entire ego is based around busting people, and so he he gets suspicious. He takes our our JT in and he's like, ah, you got to do this. You got to do that. I'm going to take your IDs. I'm going to check them out. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that and find out what's going on with you. But Hey, it's all cool guy. Here's a, here's a pass for a week. You'll be awesome for a week. But he secretly knows he's like, I'm, I'm going to arrest this guy. I mean, he's yeah, he's doomed because you know, cops get theories when they have theories, they're facts. So our guy leaves and he's like, all right, I know I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm, I'm screwed here. Like, I know they're, they're going to find out my IDs are fake. I'm going to have to uh, do something to get around this. So what does a guy who's a six do? He thinks my best route is either to go to a place without extradition where all my money will, this big wad of cash I have will, will last a long time. Or I can just bang someone and they'll take care of me. So he goes to this club and picks up someone that he knew, even though he no longer exists. He knows her. She doesn't know him. They go back to her place. They hang out. And uh, we are then introduced to this guy, Felix Buckman, who is the inspector general, the general general auditor, the He's like the biggest police chief. Yeah, he's one of the, yeah. he's like this uh, super police guy. Yeah. 
but and, a demoted. Kind of takes over the novel for a bit. Yeah, right. <laughs> so we we all of a sudden we we kind of forget about our our JT, and we move to this cop, this super cop, this uh this power cop. I don't know what you want to call. It. Anyway, he has a sister who's a total like uh, party girl. I mean, she's like, she's very much into the drug culture. She's like a raver. In my day, she would be called a raver because just her style, the way she does things. So we meet uh, Alice Buckman as long, uh, at the same time we meet Felix Buckman, the super cop has a sister who's a burner. And, but she's a, an awesome burner. She's equal to his wit, his intelligence, he, she's actually smarter than he is, and he's, he's proper in the police sense. Like, he has this moral duty, blah, 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 all that bullshit. And she just wants to have fun, wants to enjoy herself, understands her, her place in the world, et cetera, et cetera. And Buckman finds out about this whole JT thing. Because he, he passed by McNulty's desk and he's like, oh, this looks interesting. And finds out this guy doesn't exist. And how can a man not exist in a police state? Everyone exists in a police state. So he becomes interested and says, pick this guy up, bring him to me. We'll figure this out. And so he, they do, eventually. They pick up Jason Taverner and the woman he's, he's staying with. And the, then there's this interview. All right, there's some, uh, some you know, mental dueling going on. Uh, McNulty says he's a seven, which is supposed to be greater than a six because, you know, next generation of, uh, of genetic uh, eugenics. Are we looking at eugenics or what are we looking at? Like, yeah, I think it's eugenics. I think what, what's going on here is yeah. that the sixes were... It's like that, you know, that one woman from ABBA was part of that genetic experiment by the Germans to make perfect people. That's basically what he's referencing here. And so they have this conversation. Taverner impresses him enough to say that to for McNulty to say, well, you don't know what's going on. We need to find out what's going on and we're going to let you go. We're going to put a bunch of uh, trackers in you. Maybe maybe a small, you know, hydrogen bomb, just so that we know where you are at all times and we can blow you up if we choose to. And so he gets out the door of the jail the follow the following morning, and who's there? But Alice, you know, Buckman's sister, Alice. And she's like, "You you got to come with me. I know stuff, and I can free you from this this." Uh, the tracking and, and the bombs and all that stuff. And she's like, oh, wow, this is my only option. So our no man taverner goes with her to her house, you know, takes a little mescaline, just a little, like a small dose of mescaline. <laughs> like, like it never, okay, first of all, everyone, never trust someone that does a lot of drugs to say it's a small dose. And that's just something you need to know. Because a small dose to them <laughs> will not be a small dose to you. That is, that is fact. Anyway, so he, he does what she calls a small dose. And 
It almost sounds like a Terrence McKenna thing. Like, <laughs> anyway, so so he freaks out. He like trips out on mescaline that and just can't 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 deal, can't handle it. Like just is losing his shit. Can't even speak. Can't walk. Uh, just tripping out beyond belief. And she's like, God damn it. Now I have to give you some Thorazine so you can come down a little bit and be rational. And so she goes off to get him some Thorazine. In the meantime, he freaks out and he's like, I got to get out of here. I got to go do some stuff. And look, she has stuff that says I'm, I'm a real person. Like she has two of my albums. She knows I'm, I'm a person and he's freaking out and like, Oh my God, what do I do? And then he goes back inside and he's like, I got to find her. So I know what's going on. And then he finds her and she's a skeleton with new clothes. And he's like, Oh my God, that's not cool. That shouldn't happen. He goes back out and a security guard shoots at him. And he says, well, I got to get out of here. So he goes to the next door neighbor who just happens to be this very nice, very lovely uh, potter. She's literally a potter. She makes pots. You remember Ghost? This is like Ghost, but only Demi Moore, not not Patrick Swayze. Well, and and he just had to get pottery in there somewhere. Yeah, like <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> so actually, but she pottery. actually she actually makes pots. Not like the last time we had pottery in a book. Yeah, she's not healing pots. She's just <laughs> making. She's them. actually making them. Uh, so uh, they. He asks her if he can use her car to go to the hospital to get better. And then they end up in a, in a cafe where they, or something, uh, where they, they sit and they have a meal. And turns out that he's back to being alive. And he's, he's like, wait, wait a second. I'm now a person again? How did that happen? Uh, in the meantime, though, they find the body of Alice Buckman. And she's uh, overdosed on some drug, but cops be cops, right? Cops be cops. So Inspector, no, wait, sorry, <laughs> uh, General whatever Buckman, General Copman Buckman, and his his assistant Herb say, you know what? There needs to be something that happened here that we can use. So the other powerful cops don't use this against me because, I mean, it's a little late to mention this, but uh, Buckman and Buckman were not just brother and sister, not just twins, but a couple. Uh, as sometimes happens, you know, we, we've all seen this. <laughs> right. we, we, we all know the secret garden and all that stuff that happens. Uh, so, well, you know, this book is about many different kinds of love. Yeah, that's so. true. <laughs> and so, so, Buckman yeah, which says, is the, uh, which is the, <laughs> oh, look at Anthony's face. Come on. <laughs> it, so, it certainly is. And I was like, all right, I'm wondering how the guys are going to get behind this one and defend it. Yeah, right. So no, no, that. that's the part you're not going to, you're not going to hear that from us. No. So, Herb basically says, uh, you know, you got to have a plan because otherwise they're going to oust you and make you retire by outing you as a, as an incestual man with a, a kid. And he's like, all right, super sad. Uh, one of my favorite scenes in 
in the book is directly after Buckman finds out his sister wife is dead. He touches his face and feels wetness on it. Doesn't understand that he's crying. Is a it's just a beautiful hard person finally breaking down. Just a, a beautiful scene. And then uh, so Herb says, "Yeah, you're crying. You're kind of messed up, but you still got to deal with this thing. Otherwise, you got to get ahead of it. This is a political matter. Cops be cops. Uh, so they do." They say someone has to go down for this, and we choose who are we going to choose? We need someone rich. We need someone famous. Um, huh? There's this guy that just turned out to have uh, to have become famous when he was a no one before. Let's use that guy. So they they charge Jason Taverner. How convenient. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I charged Jason Taverner with the murder of Alice. And uh, and uh, then, okay, and then we go back to Jason who takes a nap, wakes up. His old girlfriend is there. His old, you know, six girlfriend is back at her house. And she's like, what did you do? And because the newspaper says he killed Alice Buckman. And... Of course he didn't, but doesn't matter because once police have theories, they're facts. And it's even used in the book, which is uh, I my another one of my favorite things is when Buck is like, he really did it. I can't believe that guy killed my sister. And then Herb has to say, he really didn't do it. <laughs> Keep in mind he didn't do it. I just like your cops be cops phrase. That's my favorite thing. <laughs> All right, so so then Taverner is like, I'm coming in. I'm going to figure this out. We're going to do this. We're going to, like, you're going to kill me or I'm getting out of it, one or the other. So he goes in. Buckman leaves because he just can't handle the stress of everything that's happening, can't handle his own, his, uh, his, his own um, emotions, just is having a full breakdown. Uh, the end, basically. And then Herb, and oh, and then uh, so the very the epilogue, which is weird that it's an epilogue. Maybe you just throw in another fifty pages of actually telling the story. But epilogue is Marianne Dominic the Potter becomes famous. Ruth Ray, who slept around a lot, had a lot of husbands. 60 or something like that, 65 husbands, uh, gets married again, seems happy. <laughs> Alice Buckman, dead. General it's Buckman. Like, it's like with Ruth Ray, he was like, hey, five marriages ain't nothing. Yeah. Like, you could have had 65. <laughs> so General General Buckman goes and retires on Malta or some, some island somewhere and uh, eventually is assassinated by his his enemies. We don't care about McNulty. We don't care about that. Oh, Kathy, the uh, the young crazy girl, uh, finds out that her husband in the camp was actually dead the whole time, but we knew that, and then she freaks out and goes back to the mental hospital that she came from. Heather Hart quits the, the business. This is the girlfriend from the beginning. She quits the business and uh, goes into obscurity. 
Taverner lives for a long time and ends up dying in some house with a bunch of memorabilia, totally, mostly forgotten, but still happy, I guess, in the end. That's the story. Jeez. Okay. That was very... That's the story. That was very restrained. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was a very restrained version of uh, Story Breakdown. I'm I'm kind of surprised. (laughs) Um, That's probably... I'm trying to get get it down to that, you know, that, that shortened time span, so... I don't know about that, but, <laughs> but it certainly but I, wasn't shorter. Uh, okay, so, ooh, so the themes that I have here, the ma- major themes are um, the the what is love aspect. Um, Baby, don't hurt me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, world building, police state, drug, and multiverse. Jason as a different kind of PKD protagonist. Definitely. And then, and then just a little general. So those those are the things we're going to break it down to. So I'm going to start with world building, even though I have what is love first in my notes. Um, with world building, one of the first things I want to say that's interesting about this book is that um, we remember that he had the fight with Don Wolheim over when Martian time slip took place, right? Right. Well, this is way, this is way more egregious because it takes place in 1988. Yeah. And there's already Martian lunar colonies and it's a very, the whole whole nine yards. (laughs) Right. So even if you were taking this as having been written in 1970, that's still only what, 18 years later. Mm -hmm. So uh, how on, so this goes to the idea that PKD was talking about how at first I just kind of laughed at this when I was reading it, but then remember he was saying that the technology was different in these other universes that he claimed to remember. And it's, I think very specifically for him having to be 1988 is important because I think he wants to set aside that this is not, he's making clear on page five, that this is not our future at all. This is another universe. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So I think being that that is on page five, that is very important mission statement for this book. What says you guys? I, I don't know. I, like, I, I don't know. I think you might be ascribing too much to that specific date and, uh, and that concept, but also, uh, you, you know, you could be absolutely right. I just don't know if it if it really matters one way or the other. So they don't turn on those 3D color TV sets to see the special guest star. There are a thousand special guests That's scattered <laughs> scattered over the su- surface of Earth and a few in the Martian colonies. Um, and That's then, great. Yeah, and then he's it's specifically somewhere around there. It specifically says. 1988. Oh no, the very first thing. Yeah, it's in, yeah, it's in there. It's in Tuesday, there. October 11th, 1988. Yeah, is what is the first sentence. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, <laughs> and and he introduces that the show and how popular Tavener is right off the bat. And, and the ego and uh, like all those all of those uh, elements. First of all, uh, to me, more important than the date is that PKD is setting up a character that is antithetical to any hero he's ever done before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
while while every other hero is a flawed, messed up, working class, incompetent, yeah, working class, like all these, like sad, from, sad. from head to toe, totally different. Pod healers, tire tire regroovers, yeah, like, exactly. You know, Grocery exactly. store clerks, right? Yeah, and and yeah. and, the, and this immediately he introduces a character that's our protagonist that has everything going for him. Not but just then, going for him, but has the personality type that means he can handle any problem. But then 20 pages later, he doesn't exist anymore. So then it's a reverse you, Alice in Wonderland. I mean, that, that's how I looked at it from the beginning. You know, he's, he's a guy who's in this sort of fantasy world of, of I'm right all the time. Everything works for me. And then is just thrust into hell, his own, you know, this absolute opposite world. And I know that's not a new story type. That story has been done several times. But to see it done by PKD is, is very different. It's very different to see the, first of all, the, the opposite protagonist then thrust into a world that he doesn't know but still can handle. So... Yeah, because I guess where he still remains a unlikely PKD protagonist is that even though he's suddenly nobody and an unperson, um, he, he still makes the right moves. Yeah, he's or at still, least some version of the right move. He still has the skills that made him get to the successful level that he was. Correct. Um, now, I've seen a lot of commentary, and I know uh, we'll get to this later from Kim Stanley Robinson, but he thinks that that this, that Taverners, like, going from somebody to nobody is, like, a good analogy or a good metaphor for PKD in the science fiction community, where, um, where he went from, you know, having all the success, which, you know, in hindsight, the the real success didn't come for PKD until after his death. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. So, which is another way of being an unperson, I guess. Yeah. Um. But but. It's but if funny, PKD it, never saw himself as that type of person, no. How is this a direct reflection of his? I would agree. His experience. I would agree. I I I I think that that is a little much. For that theory, I'm just putting it out there that yeah, some yeah. people think that. So um, the the technology in this future is has there's all kinds of funny, awesome. P- we haven't seen this kind of PKD technology in a while, from the microtrans to the mini sphincters, the many many sphincters. Yeah, there's the, so many sphincters. The three and four D pictures, the the sixes. Those kinds of things. Microtransmitters, you know, all that. Yeah. So um, so for those who think that this maybe is not a science Seed fiction. Seed H-bomb. I, I have seen some people say that this is not as science fiction as some of the other PKD books. I, I call bullshit on that. This is definitely has still some of its pulpy tendencies. It, yeah, it has. It does have all the elements, but they're they're kind of pushed to the background. Because here's my, I wanted to just want to get this out of the way and tell you my theory. And this might be uh, uh, tainted by our having Gil on the last episode talking about the literary elements that PKD was trying to do. 
and a conversation I had last week comparing uh, PKD to J.D. Salinger. But to me, this book read like a literary novel with the, the sci-fi elements pushed to the background because he's concentrating so much more on character interaction. Like, uh, that's why I said the Catcher in the Rye thing. This is like Franny and Zooey. I mean, this is, this is writing about people. These are, this isn't story that he's concentrating on. This is people and relationships and everything he was trying to do with uh, We Can Build You. I think he succeeds so much better in this. And I know those two were written far apart, but I think that's what he's talking about, taking that next step or doing something different, is he actually succeeded in writing a literary sci-fi novel. Right, which is why I kind of want to get some of the world building stuff out of the way. Um, and and there there is a lot of it because that second civil war is is sure. is really huge and important there. Um, there's there's a part on page twenty four that it's I, important, but it's not gone into in depth. I mean, it's not it's not well, like he spent pages on it. No, he does it subtly. Yeah, and that's that's kind of what I want to talk about because I really like that. Um, so there's a scene where he almost runs over a black man in his car, right? Yeah. Um, and it's page 24. And it says, Jason felt an odd emotion. There were so few blacks alive now because of Tidman's notorious sterilization bill passed by Congress back in the terrible days of the insurrection. And then he also, like later on in the page, he says, if I hit him with my car, it would mean the death penalty now. Protected by a thousand laws, you can jeer at them. You can't get into fistfight with one without risking a felony rap and 10 years in prison. So these are all like. But that's I mean, that's not him saying that. That's the that's the desk clerk. Right. But the idea and, and his response is fuck him. That's I mean, that's his whole response to the to that. And he's still supposed to be our protagonist. I mean, that's hard to that's hard to stick with. You know, you have to really. Right. You have to really gloss over that to, uh, to I don't think, well, with our guy. Doesn't he say? Um, uh, he says. He says I don't like your black racist. people for me. He says something about I don't really like your racist attitude at some point. No, so. that's what the 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 that's, driver says to him. Oh, okay, yeah. So, but what I'm saying here is is that this idea that that people of color in this this world are endangered. Is, is a really interesting thing that is done really subtly. It's not a major plot point in the story, no. but, but it's done in, in a way that, that really sells the, um, the world building in a, in a subtle way. And, and I appreciated that it was done subtly. Um, another thing is, um, and, this is and, and this is a part that well, I, I mean, thought... It could, it could be done just simply... Uh, another aspect of the world building is that everything in the opening is very intentional because PKD does reversals with everything in the first, in the first 25 pages, everything is reversed. So them being in Watts, being a couple of white guys in Watts, he's saying, you know, well, they're killing the black people. There can't be any fights. Like there's always that, you know, we're in an environment where now things are flipped. It's not a black neighborhood because it can't be because they don't really exist anymore. You know, 
I'm rich and then I'm still rich, but I'm poor. You're like everything, everything is reversed. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I, and I'm just commenting on, on what I think is going on with the world building, but I think, I know, that, I know. but I, I, I think there is a lot of really interesting commentary and you're right. He is kind of reversing things. Um, one, one scene that may kind of come off as just being funny is on, but I think there's more, a really interesting world building thing going on here, which is on page 54. When Kathy asks, she's the fake ID person. Do you want to go watch a captain Kirk? Whatever he said briefly, there's a good one at cinema 12. It's, uh, it's set on a planet in the Beetlejuice system, a lot like Tarberg's planet. You know, the Proxima system. Only in the Captain Kirk is inhabited by minions of an invisible. I saw it, he said. As a matter of fact, a year ago, they had Jeff Pomeroy, who played Captain Kirk, in the picture on his show. And they even ran a short scene, the unusual flick plugging you visit us deal with Pomeroy studio. So Pomeroy being not William Shatner <laughs> being the star of the captain Kirk's. Well, he, he, he uses almost entirely fake names for actors. And but I think singer. this is, I think this is specifically barring done, a few. Yeah. I think this is specifically done to, set aside that there are similar things in that universe, but they're okay. slight, slightly different. And I think it's a subtle world building thing that they're talking about the captain mm -hmm. Kirk's and this other star who's in them. And so I, I think that that was like, I don't know. I just thought that was a cool world building. He also mentioned, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how common that was back then. We, we know now like, uh, I mean, that's a trope now, the the generic make things subtly different thing. Right. I, I don't know if it was back then. Yeah. In 1974, I think I think that that was a little different. Uh, it, that was, was post Planet of the Apes. So that's I mean, the the, the ultimate in that uh, reversal. So. Sure. For that um, but the mentions of car phones. Uh, there is, is a good, easy, uh, early form of, of technology. But I, I just personally feel like that that Star Trek thing is, is a way to subtly say that this is a slightly different, different universe. Yeah. Uh, the next thing with the world building is the introduction of the, of the sixes. Um, and I think there's a really good scene on page 128 that... Um, that's where it's explained. The sixes, eugenic experiments themselves and secret ones seemed unusually gullible when confronted with the assertion that there existed an additional project as classified as their own. So it is explained specifically that it's, that the sixes are eugenics. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And this further connects to the idea that they're like, you know, that there is a racial element to, um, yeah, to this second, um, American civil war, which, you know, as it almost happened a couple months ago. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, it's certainly not that uh, out of the realm of the possibility. Right. So can we, can we hold on a second? Cause Anthony hasn't said anything in a while. I want to get Anthony's take. First of all, 
on the protagonist being a totally different character. So I'm really I'm just listening to you in what what parts of this you 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 know did, didn't enjoy. I'm just listening to you guys discuss it. Um, <laughs> you're you're asking my opinion on Jason Taverner, yeah, being yeah. so different from all of Dick's other sad sacks where yeah. we finally yeah. get a PKD character who's confident, who's cocky, who's for all intents and purposes, very unlikable. Yeah. yeah. I like it. I, I'm all for it. Okay. I, I, I'm all for it. But what you're going to, but what you're going to come to find later as we, as we talk more about it and I'll get more into this when it, when, when we're giving our overall opinions is that that, that becomes one of the biggest reasons why I feel the way I do about this book by the end. Okay. All right. So it's it's too easy for him or it's that that's part of it. Yeah. But I'll I'll go more into detail with it because like, again, I'm not, I, I, I'm, I, I'm understanding all what you guys are saying and I, I agree with you. It's just that I'm not so sure I'm willing to give Dick credit uh, based off of how I feel it, it by how I felt by the end of the book. Okay. Go ahead, David. Okay, so um, that's all I really have on just general world building, but I think the police state uh, stuff is some of the most, is obviously the stuff that people are most drawn to with this novel. Really? And I just don't find that very interesting. Well, the police state stuff is is really, they talk about it in the back copy. It seems like it's going to play a bigger part in the book, but the police state stuff is really window dressing to all this other stuff. But let's let's talk a little bit about like what makes up this police state because obviously obviously this is one of the things that PKD thought was important to, to the book because, you know, well he was wrong. Well, in his 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 <laughs> He was vision, wrong or he didn't do it right, but yeah, he was right. <laughs> one or the other. Well, but his vision of this world was it, it's important that it's in the post second civil war. Mhm era where the country is rebuilding from the civil war after he and his buddies put on their berets and blew up the big fortress. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, I, that's, that's totally ancillary to the book, but yeah, I, I know what you're saying. Right. But, um, I like some of these details, um, on page 19, They'll assume I'm a student or a teacher escaped from one of the campuses. I'll spend the rest of my life as a slave doing heavy labor. I'm what they call an unperson. Um, and so I, I just really want to unpack for a night for a minute. I think we're just coming off Vietnam. So the idea that the, the students would be like these unpersons or that the students would be this marginalized, hated radical class well that's that's uh, i mean it was happening in the u.s but it was also happening in cambodia which we were closely tied to so you know we're, we're, we're talking about the world seemed to start looking like it was going to be this fascist police state where where intellect was was frowned upon so i mean that that makes perfect sense that he would have those those feelings that 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 would come to fruition yeah, and then on the next page, just just because I'm there, when I spent 10 years of my life in a quarry on Luna using a, a manual pickaxe, which is funny, <laughs> um, but then he also says, I'm, I'm, 
they'll assume I'm an escaped student. And I just, I really think that there's something really interesting going on there with the, the whole escaped student thing. And, and this idea that, yeah, these intellectuals are something to be afraid of is, is an interesting way to, and we see it now with the anti-intellectualism of the right wing. Yeah. Um, in our, who, yeah. In, in, in our almost second way. civil war where like, you know, it was, the, I, I don't know the timeline, David, but uh, it was also happening in the Philippines. You know, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know if it's exactly the same era, but anti-intellectualism was, was a real thing in the seventies. Right. And I don't think it's gone away. So I do think that even though it's, <laughs> you can say that it's kind of subtle <laughs> Or besides the point of the story, I think it's an interesting commentary that PKD yeah. is making, and and it's a good one. Um, on page 61 is the first mention of the FLCs, and Jason said, uh, nobody remembers me. I have no birth certificate. I was never born, never even born. So naturally, I have no ID cards except a forged set I bought from a pole, think, <laughs> for two thousand dollars plus one thousand for my for my contact, I'm carrying them around. But God, they may have microtransmitters in them, and even knowing that, I have to keep keep them on me. You know why? Uh, even you at the top, you don't know how the society works. Yesterday, I had thirty million viewers who would have shrieked their aggrieved heads off if a poll or a nat had so much as touched me, now I'm looking down the eyes of an FLC. What's an FLC? Forced labor camp. So um, I think this is a really great moment here in the book as far as that stuff goes where um, this fear, this PKD fear of being an unperson and, 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 you know, seen through the eyes of this guy who went from being this really successful person to, to nothing and you know he's i think he's really illustrating and what i like about it is that it doesn't overtake the novel it's not like the whole thing is like think of the opposite being equilibrium right <laughs> the movie equilibrium right where like the whole thing is the tetragrammatron and there's art and there's like entire scenes where they're like crying over burning art it's just like these subtle moments and flow my tears that don't seem like they're 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 not like tied super heavily to the plot right but or but they're really important and subtly yeah done. They, have, they they are still essential they're essential and and i really like these moments and this is one that i that i really liked um page 72 like 10 pages later um the error began with a poll inspect and worked its way to pull dat. I love how he, it's that, that, the PKD, I'll just leave letters off and make it sound like. Yeah, right. That makes it futuristic and (laughs) (laughs) sci-fi. Yeah. And their pool of data at Memphis, Tennessee, even my fingerprint, footprint, and voice print, and EEG print, they probably won't be able to straighten it out. So it's a computer error. (laughs) You know, the police state is this computerized bureaucracy. Bureaucracy, (laughs) It's fully incompetent. And it's a worldwide uh, computerized police state. And then the next real thing that, that kind of sells this is the seven-day pass. 
Tavner is like, okay, well, we don't know who you are, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll give you this seven day pass and you'll be able to, to move. And that only works for so long. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then the last thing that I think is really interesting about the police state, and then we can move on from this is that Felix himself um, and I almost said Felix Bumgardner. That's the best. <laughs> Felix Buckman um, is in charge of the death camps, and he becomes. Yeah, he's he like, was. He was. Yeah. Yeah. He's a he's a really important character for all this. So, um, all right. So, any last thing? Well, he's we- basically the eponymous character. I mean, if if you want to look at it that way, I, I mean. Yeah. And I think it's he is the policeman that cries. So. <laughs> yeah, right. And and yes, that's a little on the nose for the title, mm-hmm. right? But at the same time, I think the title is partially why people immediately assume that a heavy role for the police state in the story. It's oh, yeah. done very subtly, but the police state is, I think, tied to all elements of the book. Well, here's here's my theory, David, is that the title is a direct is directly correlated to Catcher in the Rye. I think he wanted to do that same kind of title. Okay. Where it's not tied to the plot. It's an entirely ancillary thing or or you know, something that that evokes emotion but doesn't necessarily dictate what the novel's about. If that's true, he says the ti- he has the title word for word in parts of the book, almost. Oh, no, in parts. Yeah, I, I, yeah. And then Buckman has a scene But where... then so does Catcher in the Rye. <laughs> that's true. Okay. But, but I, I, I don't know. I, I think that, and he has the on-the-nose scene with Buckman and, and the tear, which right. is a great scene. Yeah. Get me wrong, but I I think um, I don't know I I, I but the, but the police state thing I understand why people think it's so gravitate towards that yeah gravitate towards it I also see why you say it's ancillary I think the truth again is somewhere in between I think yeah, you probably. cannot you cannot have this novel without it being taking place in the in the remains of the second. American Civil War that happened sometime early in the 80s. Right. Um, right. And then, you know, even though the what is love theme is important and Tavener's unpersonhood is, is a huge part of it, it all ties together. And one of the things that I think is great about this novel is that you have all those elements and I actually think they work together there, there are some cringy things, especially with the, the Buckman twins. Um, and there are things that don't work for me, but the positives so outweigh the negatives in the sense of we've seen PKD in the past, like come up with all kinds of different ideas and for him to meld them and bring them all together mm-hmm. is really cool. So uh, anything else on the police state stuff? I mean, I'm, I'm sure we'll mention it. Anthony, do you have any thoughts on, on because I you know you and I are both fans of a, a good dystopia and 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 a good setting like that. Like, how did you feel about the dystopic elements of this book? 
like I said before, it's it's window dressing to 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 the other stuff that he's talking about. It's very. I think part of the issue is for newer people, newer people, newer newer people coming to this book, is that we're so attuned to sci-fi and even works that have been adapted from Dick's work, having a police state that is very aggressive and very violent. And in this one, as I've said before, they're about as intimidating as mall security. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Where, they're nice and passing out joints and shit. And then they're like, you can go, you need some money. Um, it doesn't, I, I, I can't, I feel like I agree to an extent that it, it, it needs to be subtle to focus on the other things Dick is getting at. But because the police state in this seems so lack, lackadaisical about everything, even when he's arrested, there's no tension for me between Tavener trying to m- maneuver his way through this police state. Because he's basically, that's... they give him a fucking pass. He's just like, well, go on, it's fine. Yeah. Oh, sorry, <laughs> I didn't mean to curse. Sorry. But well, No, you can't. But here's the thing. Here's why I think it's a great police state. And read my, as here's why I think you're wrong, Anthony. <laughs> well, no, 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 no. You're you're right to have your opinion. I'm just I'm telling you mine. Sure, go ahead, go ahead. I like that the police state is kind of milk toast in here because I think that for a police state to continue to function and to continue to work, where people will like passively live with it, they have to think it's not so bad. And that is the insidious nature of this police state is not crazy. It's not over the top. And you could see people just being accepting it because, hey, we went through this terrible second civil war and now things are a little more chill. We may not have people of color anymore and some other (laughs) things. And we may be all right with pedophilia. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, we should talk about that scene as well. But the... uh, uh, he also says it straight out, like yeah. the police are milk toast, except for when they want to arrest you. That's when they're dicks. Yeah. Up to the point where they arrest you, they're assholes, and then they're nice. You know, prior to the you being them being aware of you, they're nice. After they've arrested you, they're nice. But that point where they're you're the enemy, you are really the enemy. So. I, I think that's more realistic than than the over-the-top police states and all that stuff. Because I think you're right, David, is that people will accept a police state that's milk toast. If, but if, when it goes overboard, people are going to flip out. And then it's too late. And uh, so we're going to come back to the love stuff, even though I have it first in my notes. We're going to come back to that. Uh, the next thing that I – the next themes that I really kind of want to address is the um, – and we already kind of addressed this earlier a little bit, but the drugs and the multiverse thing. Let's let's talk about waking up in this other universe. So on page 13 is the first time. It's as early as page 13. Uh, pain, he opened his eyes reflectively. He touched his chest. His hand-tailored silk suit had vanished. He wore a cotton hospital, a cotton hospital robe laying flat on the, on the gurney. And... Um, you know, he's just starting to get the, like, the inklings of it. And then slowly he was like, wait, I'm not in the hospital now. Not, 
all these things. And we don't understand later why it's happening. And um, a, later we get some kind of ridiculous explanation for it. Um, but they're, they're all caught in Alice's mindscape. Right. But well, not really. But kind of. But not really. But kind of. But not really. Every time someone takes the drug that changes reality, it changes all reality is yeah. what the idea is. That's the, the idea, but yeah. So what, but what specifically he, with him, it's because of Alice has that obsession with him. Therefore she makes him an unperson so she can meet him, blah, blah, blah. Right. And so, um, but then I do think as much as I kind of think I kind of, I just wish that as I said earlier, that it was like Tagomi in Man in the High Castle, that it wasn't explained, that it's just the universe hopping, hopping happened, would have been slightly better for me. Um, I don't hate the drug explanation. I just kind of think it's a little ridiculous. <laughs> um, however, when the drug starts wearing off, there are some really cool moments that come out of the drug wearing off. Um, on page 167, at the front gate of the house, the cop appeared, his face distorted. He stood sideways, reflexively, lifted his gun, held it with both hands and fired at Jason, but the gun wavered. The cop was trembling too badly. And uh, um, he, it talks about him running to his quibble, which, by the way, cars are either called quibbles or flip-flaps. Uh, uh, flying cars. Yeah, yeah I, and I, I do love the name quibbles and flip-flap. Flip-flaps. Although every time you say flip-flap, you're going to try to start to say flip-flop. <laughs> it's hard not to. Um, I don't know. I say flippity-flap a lot. So the flip-flap <laughs> comes naturally. I love the scene where the cop is like trying to arrest him, but he's unfazing from reality. Right. Because, you know, I, I thought this, this was a really cool moment. Um. And then it was not the mescaline he realized. The cop saw it too, her lying there, the ancient skeleton, as if as if dead all these years. That was a cool moment. You mentioned it in the breakdown. <laughs> Just like, oh, wait, she's suddenly a skeleton. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, uh, and then he does tell the cop, or, or uh, Mary does say, uh, I'm not an escaped student, nor am I escaped from a forced labor camp. Um, but I am in trouble. And then she says, uh, did you take a toxic drug? And um, probably. <laughs> yeah, probably. And then. Um, but I'm a um, six, so it's cool is basically what he says. <laughs> yeah. And then on 178, as always, he said to himself, this is this is this is how it's been up to the other day. My reality is leaking back. Because the, the records that were once blank are now suddenly his records again. Which is um, very cool. I, I mean, that was a, a very cool moment. Yeah. Um, I am one of them, them being blank, not, not them coming back, but them being blank in the first place. <laughs> that they that just, was, I have a blank record and I yeah. don't know why. <laughs> um, that was great, I thought. Yes. Maybe I'm one of the only, only one of a great number of people leading synthetic lives of popularity, money, power by means of a capsule while living actually, meanwhile, in a bug infested ratty old hotel on Skid Row. That's a very, 
That's a, almost a whole PKD novel just thrown away in a, in a paragraph. Well, we'll get to that novel. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, what happened, Jason Tavner thought, this is earlier on that same page, is that a drug wore off. She, somebody, stopped giving it to me, and I woke up to reality. There in a shabby, broken-down hotel with a cracked mirror and bug-infested mattress, and I stayed that way until now, until Alice gave me another dose. Now, see, that that would have made sense if he had added some kind of insecurity uh, within Taverner, you know, that, that said that he was afraid that he might be a nobody underneath all this glamour and stuff. But that's not the way the, the book was written. So that... Yeah. And I really should point, point out that every time I give page numbers, I'm giving the, the vintage edition because that's what I have. Um, yeah, and then... Um, on page 207 and 208, he says, time bending is a function of the brain. It's a structuralization of perception and orientation. This is the pseudoscience we haven't had in like the PKD pseudoscience right. <laughs> like, section in a while. Um, a drug such as KR3 breaks down the brain's ability to exclude one unit of space out of another. You know, we never did this. We should have been keeping a running tally of all the fake drug names. <laughs> like, so <laughs> KR3. Um, oh, that's, yeah. And all that. Yeah. There's but way it, too many drug names to keep track of. Maybe somebody has over the years. Yeah. We'll, we'll find a database somewhere of all the drugs that PKD used. Page, in his two, books. page 211, he passed over to a universe in which he didn't exist. And passed over with him were objects of his precept system. And then the drug wore off, he passed back again. What actually locked him back was back here was nothing he took or didn't take. So it was, of course, a file came back to us at Data Central. So, like, the files, like, reappear. Like, when he appears and disappears, his files, is yeah, everything disappears with him. The reality shifts. Okay. Um, some funny things uh, I liked, um, and I already mentioned this, the blank records. I also liked on page 92 when he called somebody a celebrity fucker. Just thought was really funny. Um, but I did, here's the thing that's interesting about when you're talking about the literary sense of this book. Uh, usually I have a list of all kinds of different parts that made me laugh. The celebrity fucker and the blank records were the only things that I kind of laughed out loud at. Yeah. This is not a funny one. This is not a funny book. And I, I've grown to expect, Oh, Anthony, you found, I think Anthony might disagree. (laughs) Yeah. You're muted, bud. But if you, (laughs) what did you, did you find this funny? Did you, I I mean, I, I found, I found certain things hilarious. I think only because I had never seen Dick, throw out f-bombs in such a way that he does in this in this novel Hmm. but let me see if i can find it i mean the technology made me laugh like the flip-flaps and the quibbles and the and he made that fart joke right in the middle of the book for some reason you don't even remember the fart i I think (laughs) i think i think dick just being overly like aggressive in his dialogue sometimes is not what i expect from him for example on page uh 100 oh he said 
But, see, I had a thing going with my boss. The Poles wanted to drag me off to a forced labor camp, one in Georgia, where I'd be gang-banged to death by rednecks, but he protected me. And I was like, this is not really what I, I expect from Dick. <laughs> it, there was one that it was uh, that I, I was like, okay, well, that's a turn of phrase I have not, I have not heard. It, it, it was... It was between uh, the conversation between Felix and Alice, where well, I can't figure out where I highlighted it, but somebody says "muff dive into contrition," and I was like, "All right, <laughs> I guess." There's also a a line when he's uh, with Kathy, where he calls her like a psycho something or other, and that's just the way it is. But I can't remember; I couldn't find it when I went back to look for it. Oh uh, yeah, here here it is. It's it's on page ninety. Uh, where her and Felix are talking, and he goes, fetishist, he snapped at her with fury. We process a hundred of you a day, you and your leather and chain mail and dildos. God. <laughs> he stood breathing noisily, feeling himself shake. I just imagine that he's just, he's, I'm so mad about this non-vanilla sex. <laughs> right? <laughs> and then well, that... later on, on page, on, the, on the, the next page, she goes, and what would he do? She massaged his short-cropped gray hair. Tell me, please, sir, muff-dive me into panting contrition. <laughs> what the <laughs> fuck are we talking about? Now, that, <laughs> that it, first conversation was so weird. Well, I, it, 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 it made me kind of wonder, like, what Dick's real relationship with sex is at this point, having read so many of these books, because it feels like he has this desire for what you would consider not the norm, but also I, I could, I was like, I'm, I don't understand where he, he, where he lies within this kind of world, because it, it, it's in the same world where, you know, being into BDSM is shunned and too taboo, but right. at the same time, it's cool, man, pedophilia is fine. Yeah. Right. So I, I'm and I don't have an answer, but I, I would like to pose the question of like, how do you guys feel about the, the kind of the, the sexual relationships represented in this book, especially the ones that are, for all intents and purposes, not not cool and not not, you know, I, I'm a I'm all for the BDSM and leather and chains. So I think we all know which one I'm talking about. So that's not cool. And the phone but, orgies. Oh, well, which which I was like, you know, when did phone sex hotlines become a thing? You know, definitely after this, I think. After but, this, yeah. Well, what do I know? Late eighties, late eighties, early nineties. Yeah, yeah. So, but but I, I'm Larry's just, very I, sure of that. <laughs> <laughs> and I have the phone bills to uh to prove it. Oh boy, okay. uh, but so I'm just I found this kind of interesting, and it it just I couldn't figure out like in this world where shunning. What what media. is right and what is yeah, wrong? We're we're shutting yeah, like, BDSM, where but we're line? we're allowing <laughs> exactly yeah. Like where is that moral line in this society? You. And is that is that Dick saying all these fascists who want a police state are just a bunch of fucking creeps and pedophiles? But I don't know, and I'm I fully ready what, to I, admit I don't know. I think what he was trying to do was set up the idea that this is a different universe and the rules are different, and like whether it's positive or negative is is. Well, it's, I, I think I think it's just the idea that it's just another thing that makes this universe different from ours, right? And and I think he was doing it. I think this whole idea of the different kinds of love that is going on. I don't. I oh, think it could tie into that. 
I think the sexuality is separate from that because of the whole. No, because the guy said he loved the kid. Well, he he didn't say he was just having him for sex. He said, "I love this boy. I want to marry him." Here's my Nambla card. Yeah. Well, he did say that he. One one of the quotes he he, and this is not obviously. This would not be PC today to talk about, but he did say in one of his quotes that he was worried that people would think this this book was an argument for homosexuality and other kinds of sexualities, and he said that that, that wasn't it. And I should have used really? that quote. Yeah. It's, I mean, we're coming off the free love era. I mean, it's still we're still in the free love era, but yeah, so coming and, off the you know the the sixties style where everybody's kind of sobering up. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of processing this live as we're talking about it, but my yeah. thought on this is that I believe he was trying to make this idea that in this universe the rules are different, things are different, and it's I think by that quote of him saying I hope people don't think that it's an argument for this is that he's specifically saying I'm not saying whether it's positive or negative it's just it's a different not, thing not making a judgment call i'm not making a judgment call and so the incest the pedophilia the different things i think um but that just adds to this concept of this book is about all different kinds of love david gill where are you at when i need you most yeah yeah to help me understand this right i, I well, think you're right anthony because maybe we know, need like a PKD. bat signal for gill <laughs> PKD is very much a conservative sexual person. I agree. As far as we know, well, as far just, as we've been told. <laughs> well, from what I can gather, I feel, and I could be totally wrong, and I, I'm sure I'm sure. Yeah, he could have those, a secret sex dungeon one, that we never found so, out about. So I mean, I, I want to believe he found a box of BDSM magazines and was like, well, that's going in the book. Yeah. But I, I just, I, I, I... I remember setting this book down after I read this chapter and just thinking to myself, it's cool, man. It's cool if you want to have sex with the lights on or, or if you don't want to just have missionary vanilla sex. man. It's fine, dude. Just relax because I get this, I get this weird sexual repression vibe yeah, from Dick. I do, too. And a lot of, and a lot of this stuff. And it, and it might be because I'm, you know, my... I'm pretty open about my sexuality, right? Like, so, so maybe like, I just don't, I don't process it in the way that Dick would, but I'm trying to, to understand Dick through the books that we read. And it just seems like he, he's really yucking a lot of yums when he wants to yum it too. Right. <laughs> but, uh, that but, does uh, not also, include the pedophilia though. We have a lot of stuff to, that we could unpack here is because like you're, you're a younger generation. So, Mm-hmm. AIDS was in control when you came up, sort of. I'm, I'm not going to say totally, but safe sex was a thing. When David and I were coming up, it was, if you got bit by a mosquito, you could die. You know, sex became this very, uh, very taboo subject because, you know, who knows what could happen. Would you say it's been, it was Dick like demonized? Up, Dick came up in a very rigid sort of male, female, you know, missionary position world and then free love came after that and he was probably trying to process a lot of it not understanding i mean 
how them them kids. And then he ends and keep in mind he during this era marries Tessa, who was much younger than him. Yeah. At that time, and and hanging out with a lot of the free lovers doing all kinds of drugs at his house before it got foreclosed in 1971. So he's in the Bay Area with all yeah. these drugs. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Over. I mean, there's a crazy amount to unpack here. They were <laughs> like, Phil, you don't have to like put a sheet between you guys when you're yeah. doing it. <laughs> yeah, but you can do anything between the hole and the sheet. <laughs> so anyway it's just oh, something God. it's just something that really i think i was thinking of a lot about in this book and then that kind of kind of expanded into how i've started to interpret dick's relationships with women and how he writes about them and it's not it's not positive guys mm-hmm. and i and, and i'm i'm sorry old sci-fi nerds who get mad at me for saying this in you know like it's it's not and it's it's okay to acknowledge that there's something that isn't all that great in a book that you like. I don't know. I'm well, just... I I want to say this about the the love thing. Mm-hmm. I I know we'll talk about it further, but Larry, it's cool if, if you love me. If you notice, uh, the one that doesn't understand love is the genetically superior person. Yeah, everyone else seems to understand love That's much more than he does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think so, if we're looking at this character as being a somewhat analog to Dick himself, it makes sense that this character doesn't understand like how to love and, and what the, the, what loss means and what, you know, all those elements that he discusses in the book. That's uh, it's the ordinary people that get it. And he just doesn't. It's I, have, I have a very, abstract question to ask you guys um I, just based off of what i've noticed do you feel like dick is becoming more and more and more self-involved with his writing the longer we're going along through his publication history because i feel like as we're I going along so. the, the books are becoming more and more and more and more more about him in his life at that as opposed to when we first started yeah like with solar lottery yeah i'm just curious because i think totally. i think they are yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah, but we but saw I also, his, I also we saw it as early as Clans of the Alphane Moon. I also I think, think he's branching he's branching out into literary uh, literary literary elements that he wasn't touching on early in his career. Right, because as so we've known as he an wants artist to be... as well as expanding his his own, you know, cathartic elements. Well, I think you can be a literary writer without just writing about your fucking life problems, but that's a whole wow. other topic for <laughs> yeah, another. Right. <laughs> that's a whole other so, topic for another th- another yeah. day. That's not related, but I I agree with what you're saying. Okay, so one of the most important fundamental things of this novel that I've been holding off talking about that's really important is the gas station scene. So, and this is important to PKD because this is the the one that he thought happened in real life and and proved that he was a prophet and that he could um, diagnose his son's hernia and before it happened and all that stuff is that he wrote a scene in this novel where where a character helps someone out at a gas station right and then he said that this happened to him in real life and now the reason i bring this up to him and or in relation to the novel and why it's so important is that when he, he used this as an example of the, what is love 
aspect of the novel in the sense that, well, people will be looking at like the sexuality aspects of it. He, when, when asked what love means and, and how love is tied to reality, I thought of, there's the line in the movie Contact that Jodie Foster, Matthew McConaughey, um, um, yeah. based on the Carl Sagan, there's a line of dialogue in the book where Matthew McConaughey's religious character says to Jodie Foster's character when she's like grilling him on like scientific things and says, um, do you believe in God? And she's like, prove it. And then he said, do you love your father? Prove it. Right. He says, prove it. Right. And this whole scene with the gas station is all he's doing is helping somebody out with a couple bucks, I think, if I recall correctly. And to PKD, it was this idea that he was showing love to this other person, that he was showing ca- kindness and caring I mean, to, yeah, to this other person. Compassion as love, basically. So the different kinds of love, I don't want everyone to mistake the idea that it's just like the... the, the Pedophilia um, and incest. <laughs> and the buff diving to contrition and all yeah, that right. stuff. Like it's not about the phone sex. It's, he it's, seems very angry about lesbians well, in this. Well, but but it it isn't. But it also kind of is because it is fairly significant it's in bo- the book. Okay, and, but, but, both, but this but... scene is not just PKD being like, "See, I did a nice thing for a black guy," patting myself yeah, right. on the back. <laughs> right. Well, well, you have a character who's who's desperate for human contact. Right. At that point in in the book, he's like, "If I don't talk to someone, I'm going to die." <laughs> Because yeah. that's how I feel right now. I'm going to die if I don't talk to a human being. And right, so that's is, that's the relationship. I mean, which yes, is why that that's that's a, a an aspect of love is the compassion element, but it's also done out of desperation. So it's not like you know, if if you if you uh, accepted a drink of water when you're you're dying of thirst means that you're you're connecting with that person. It's not the same thing. It's and since since Phil and obviously this is autobiographical, right? This is Phil he needed that human contact. He needed that. He said it. That's why he had all the junkies there. That's that's you know whether this happened years after he wrote the book and proves that he's a prophet or he's just misremembered. Proves nothing. <laughs> proves nothing. Or if he just remembers doing it I mean, no. you because who that, knows? Because how he, often do you go to a gas station if you have a car? You go to a gas station a lot of times. Anytime you're at a gas station, someone could be in trouble and you can help them. I mean, it's this yeah. isn't something that happens once in a lifetime. So, yeah. So, so, right. And with him, like, basically putting up the idea that he, Phil, put up the idea that he was traveling back and forth between these other universes that, that this reality break was happening to him. Perhaps it in his mind happened another time. We don't know, sure. but, um, but what we do know is that this novel is more autobiographical in the sense of, I mean, it, it could be closer to his reality in the sense that he could have, felt like these reality breaks were happening. And we don't know if it's a, a process. It's, it's, it's an after effect of the mescaline that he was doing on a regular basis, or if he was really thinking that this was happening, who knows? Right. Yeah. But, but what we do know is that it turned out to be 
a pretty, pretty interesting and unlike any other kind of science fiction novel that was happening before or after it. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, this and where's where'd Anthony go? God damn it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he, he probably went to the bathroom, but uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I, I want him here when I, I get into when I read it the first time. I mean, we're I don't know what what stories you have of this book, but uh, yeah, I I, don't, I definitely very important period of time. So I I originally read this during the first time we lived in San Diego around 2002. Oh, so you read it later? You read it later than much later than I did. Yeah, the first time I, I read Flow My Tears, um, around the time that I um, moved moved here, I had read that this was an alternate history novel about about the second American Civil War. <laughs> That's what how I was sold to me. And, and I read it and I liked it at the time. I thought it was really good. Um, I don't think I, I liked... At the time, I liked that I they thought it was, you know, this I, I immediately was drawn to the idea that there isn't just one universe, that there's like this kind of multitude of universes. I enjoyed that aspect of it. I definitely got more out of reading it this time as my 29th. Yeah, well, <laughs> 29th, 29th in a row. PKD. 29th in a row PKD novel because. I've still already read Vallis, so technically it would have been my 30th PKD novel to have read. And um, but well, we got a couple more that I've, I've read after this, but uh, yeah. So, I think so the only other the only it's other it's all new to me, baby. It's all <laughs> new to me now. The the only other duplicate I think I have after this one is Vallis. But um, uh, that that being said, um, I. Yeah, it was a very, it was a much better reading experience this time. And I feel like I got a lot more out of it, partially because I think I'm a little bit more aware at this point. I know right. more. And then partially because I know more about PKD. Yeah, that was, both of those things matter. Uh, well, so I want to talk about when, when I first read this book. When I first read this book, it was uh, 1994. I was living in San Francisco. Nine Inch Nails were uh, hot. <laughs> I was hanging out with a bunch of Sonoma uh, college kids, Sonoma State college kids, and uh, going down to the city, you know, City Lights bookstore, reading stuff by Kerouac, Burroughs, Bukowski, doing all those things. J.D. Salinger comes into play here, and I started reading all the PKD books that I read. And this was not one of the first. This was one of the last ones I read. I think I read this, Crap Artist, and uh, the uh, trans Transmigration of Timothy Archer uh, as the last three books I read of his. And this book fed into all that literary stuff I was getting from, from all those other things. It fit in so perfectly with just those other things that where plot didn't really fucking matter at all. What, uh, who cares what, what's happening when you're reading the cut up method, like nothing, none of that matters. You know, it's all about characters and people and understanding how relationships work and whether, whether the mystery is solved or not, doesn't fucking matter at all. 
So to me, that was the, the fundamental importance of this book, was learning about these different types of relationships and finding it in a sci-fi author was incredible, like an incredible discovery. Because, you know, sci-fi to me was, was still all the kind of shoot 'em up stuff or the very funny stuff like, like Douglas Adams and stuff like that. So, so this is, a, I guess it was a, a sort of a turning point to understand that you can get literature anywhere and you can tie story in. And I don't know, it was very important to me in that way. I know a lot more now about the, than I did back then, obviously. And you know, and just for a little behind the scenes, Tim like Carol and shit like that. <laughs> Anthony and I read reread this book recent recently ahead of you. Like we both finished it. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and started in our at our group chat. I had, we started to discuss it before you had gone back to to read it. Right. Yeah, I just finished it this morning. So. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, that much different than us. <laughs> yeah, because I think we were both done over a week ago. So, yep. um, yeah, it, I, it is a totally different experience. Okay, so, um, should, I mean, Anthony, do you want to talk about ahead of ranking or would you like, because we've already given our, our overall thoughts. I feel like Larry and I could just rank at this point. <laughs> I, I'll, I can, I can, I mean, I was going yeah, to in, was gonna work it into my ranking. So why don't no, why go don't, for it? Let's, let's do it. So we're starting our rankings. Yeah, um, I'm going to get... go. David, go first. <laughs> uh, obviously, five out of five flip flaps um, uh, for me. This is, um, I think, one of PKD's best novels. I think uh, it is up there with your Three Stigmatas, your Man in the High Castle. There's a reason why it's collected with those books in the American New Library. Uh, I know Vallis, I think, is collected with that as, like, kind of the fourth pillar of his, like, masterpieces. I wouldn't... Uh, I, I might have different masterpieces, and I know, like, I like Martian Times, like you guys didn't, but I, I would... The earlier books. <laughs> yeah, and um, even though I have great uh, affection for the work of the 50s um, and think... Uh, I in the sky is better than Ubik in, in a lot of senses. This goes up there with Ubik and I in the sky and, um, you know, is, is one of the best. I think um, I think it's solid as hell. Uh, there's a few things that annoy me and there's a few nitpicks, but all those things are minor compared to the things that outweigh the, the cringy, weird um, twin relationship things. And, um, you know, so overall, yeah, I love it. Great. Masterpiece. Larry. So, all right. Well, for me, I, like I said, this book was sort of a, a turning point, And it was really the first time I looked at, at Philip K. Dick as a literary author, as someone that had chops. Like I had read his stories before and they had been good stories but I didn't think of him as someone that could like do, do JD Salinger or anything even remotely close. And he didn't, he's not fucking JD Salinger. <laughs> like he's not quite that level of, of a uh, literary author, but he's, he certainly went away from the, the pulp sci-fi that I was reading at the time. But overall, you know, this is, I, I, I agree with David. One of the, 
best books I've read of his, and that still stands today. So I I am going to uh, give it uh, five Derringers out of uh, five. Whoa, rare five star rating for <laughs> Mr. Only, only the second one I've ever given. All right, Anthony. All right, well, hold my beers, Anthony said. Yes. I'm all about this. Why? I want to hear it. So I would like to start with some dialogue that stood out to me um, towards towards uh, the end, toward middle, more the middle of the book. It's on page 118. Love isn't just wanting another person the way you want to own an object you see in a store. That's just desire. You want to have it around, take it home, set it up somewhere in the apartment like a lamp. Love is, she paused, reflecting, like a father saving his children from a burning house, getting them out and dying himself. When you love, you cease to live for yourself. You live for another person. And then later, on the next page, towards the bottom, she, she, they're discussing, <clears throat> you know, death. And Ruth says, but you can grieve, Ruth said anxiously, studying his face. Jason, grief is the most powerful emotion a man or child or animal can feel. It's a good feeling. In what fucking way, he said harshly, right? Grief causes you to leave yourself. You step outside your narrow little pelt, and you, can, you can't feel grief unless you've had love before it. Grief is the final outcome of love because it's love lost. You do understand. I know you do. But you just don't want to think about it. It's the cycle of love completed. To love, to lose, to feel, grief, to leave, and then to love again. Jason, grief is awareness that you will have to be alone, and there is nothing beyond that because alone is the ultimate final destiny of each individual living creature. That's what death is, the great loneliness. Now, that's great, but none of this fucking book earns any of that. So, like I said, hold my beers. Um, You set up this character who's unlike any of Dick's other protagonists. He's an unlikable, womanizing, snarky asshole. He has all the confidence that none of the other characters do. Hell yeah, I'm on board. Check plus from Anthony. Let's do this. So we drop him. He, He gets this alien attached to him, and it all changes from here, right? But by the end of the book, I don't really feel like Jason Taverner had any real arc. I don't think he ever suffered. I don't think he ever felt that real hurt of, I used to be amazing and famous, and now I'm just this, like, unknown celebrity, right? It's never really explored outside of a few couple moments where he's like, oh, yeah, this sucks. But you know what? I'm a six. I'm just going to plow through and get it done, right? And every step of the way, it always just kind of works out for him. He immediately, he wakes up in the hotel. The guy at the hotel takes him to where he can get his IDs made. And okay, so that problem solved. The, the police department's so milquetoast, they're like, eh, whatever. And, and I agree with you that it's more insidious for them to be like, oh, it's fine, go ahead and leave. But we're still watching you. It, that, I, that I'm into. But I never felt like at any point in time, Jason Taverner did anything but just be confused and irritated about his situation. And that, to me, was a huge downfall for this, for me enjoying the majority of this book. Because had the book earned the dialogue I just read, oh, it would have been a five out of five for me. Because it is, I, it is different. I, it's different in the way that we're following a character that Dick doesn't very often explore. Right? Or ever. It, or ever, yeah, or ever. Um, but I don't think 
I don't think the execution was where I felt it needed to be to be impactful to me. Not to mention all the weird, all the weird sex stuff where I couldn't figure out like where he's really coming from. And and then there's a later, there's a later moment in the diner between him and I forget her name, the woman that makes the pots. Mary. Mary, where they're talking about critics, and he's like, he's like, well, people are gonna tell you that it's shit. People are gonna tell you that it's the best thing they've ever heard, and you just kind of gotta, you know, they're gonna they're gonna talk about you and talk about things you did 19 years ago as if it just happened yesterday. <laughs> and 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 I wanted to see more of that struggle. I wanted to see more of that struggle of this guy who's had it made, because that's the journey to me. Because growth is the journey. Hmm. And then and then you know, we, we slap, we tack on this epilogue where I imagined it was just like the final, like still shot of a movie. And yeah. it's just like, so-and-so went on to make pots and this other person went on to freeze do this. Frame. Yeah. Freeze frame with, with the, with the text with the title cards yeah. over it. And, and I, 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 it, that, that is really where it fell short for me. All the ideas and all like the, the, the stuff you guys have been talking about, which is why I've just been listening. I agree with, but my, I remember going back to what David Gill said where he was saying that, you know, Dick would have wanted to know if he had done a good job as a writer, too. And for me, from that, from the perspective of, of character, I don't think he did. And I don't think you're wrong in saying that it, it's, it's very literary, because it, it is. But I, I don't think he, I don't think the execution was there for me. And so I'm going to give it three out of five unearthed BDSM magazines. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm also going to tack on that uh, The Catcher in the Rye is one of the worst fucking books ever written. You're welcome. The what? The Catcher in the Rye is one of the worst books I've ever read in my life. All right. <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of it, but I wouldn't say it was the worst. Um, it, it's, 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 it's just, uh, it, I mean, honestly, it's kind of. Well, you're just. Uh, it's kind of like this where it's like yeah. I'm going to walk, wander <laughs> around and whine and never learn a goddamn thing. Yes. So, yes, it so, is. Uh, it's a it seems to be a, a form that you do not like i would say that most literary fiction you, you want characters like. to grow and and learn and sometimes that doesn't happen oh and you're totally right i just and, and had there been had there been more of a struggle for taverner had i seen him at least like like we watch him deal with this lack of celebrity and even at the end he's still like Ah, uh, yeah, I went through it, but I still made it back to my mansion. I'd be like, you didn't learn a goddamn thing, did you? Right? But it, it, none of that's there in the in the middle of the book for me. And and I'm I'm not saying, and I don't disagree with you guys, but I definitely had a different reading and experience than you did. No, no, and that's fair. And, yep. and um, you know, I hope some of the some of the PKD fans that listen to us will agree with Anthony. Why? Because uh, why should it all be one way? I don't know. Yeah. No, no, and I think I think it's good to get a different perspective on it. I mean, if we were all, if uh, it was I another three stigmata, just standing ovation across the board. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and well, I understand that this is Dick really kind of chartering the waters of that that literary territory that he's always wanted to be in, and for that I can definitely commend him. Um, but it's it's not there for me. Yeah. No, no, that's fair. All right. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, goddamn, we've gone so long. I don't know how much I want to give to the Kim Stanley Robinson stuff, but um, <laughs> well, hit your favorite quote. Um, he says the premise, as Damon Knight has remarked, is one that creates situations that cannot be made logical or coherent. 
the facts of the narrative cannot be reconciled to each other. Using Dick's explanation for them, it is another of the novel. It's another of the novels in which inconsistency is part of the structural fabric. So he's saying that like the inconsistencies is just like a whole part of it. Hmm. And then he also, one thing he said is that this is another version of the miracle in our friends from Frolics 8, except in this case, the elite is defeated by a God more like the Holy Spirit than the Jehovah alien in our friends. In any case, it's a quiet one of Dick's most moving scenes, making his case for human solidarity um, without the desperate didactism of our friends and he used didactism which is one of cody's favorite words oh, yeah um <laughs> uh as far as movie treatment we almost got it in 2007 the halcyon company acquired the first look rights to dick's works and in 2009 they announced immediately after finishing terminator salvation that next they were going to adapt flow my tears the policeman said oh. apparently Apparently Terminator Salvation did not do so well because that movie never got made. Um, I agree with Anthony as far as my movie treatment goes. I would I would do it as a, a limited series and be able to expand it out a little bit. And I think he's I think you're right, Anthony. We need a little bit more of an arc for Jason Tavener, and we would definitely have to have like a Bradley Cooper or somebody play. Tavner, who's like one of those ridiculously handsome actors. Yeah, that, right. Yeah. For that, you definitely need one of those. And um, I think you could make yeah, you a, need a you need a rom-com leading man who's yeah. 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 yeah, and you need a couple the reason why you need a miniseries and a couple episodes is so you can really build out and expand the um the uh kind of unreality or the um the multiverseness of it, like where, where right. like the slightly different universes could be played out over different episodes. So, and who would I get to direct that? I don't know, but um, since I'm doing it for TV, I'm probably going to get a bunch of TV directors. So, um, but uh, you know, you could do some really fun stuff with that. So I don't know who I would direct it. Cause you're going to have multiple episodes, but <laughs> So, yeah, I would definitely do that for a limited series. Apple TV Plus, because they've been making kick-ass shit. Ugh. Dude, they have. You cannot fuck all right, with right, their Apple. All right, all right. That's a Apple in that's every a different podcast. form. Okay. I mean, so, we're still not allowed on iTunes, but... Yeah, they can eat a D. <laughs> uh, eat a dough. Sure. Um, he meant dick, David. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Uh, Dick likes suggestions, and then we're then we're done. Uh, Wait, what about Larry? I, I wouldn't make that. What about move? my I make that mini series? <laughs> all right. Oh, I'm sorry, Larry. I missed you. Yeah. Larry and uh, Anthony. First of all, that would be a movie. First of all, straight up, we don't need that much time with this. This is about people, but we don't need to spend like half an hour talking soap opera style about how they feel. Uh, yeah, just. This would be just sort of a, a generic, you know, January movie that no one really thinks about a lot. Shooting high. Shoot yeah. Wow. <laughs> You're really selling me on this pitch in the room. I just don't think it would be that. Uh, you don't think it would make a good film. 
No, I think it would be an art film oh. than anything else. You know, so it's not going to make a, a lot of noise or anything like that. It's not a big action thing like they always want to make PKD stuff. Yeah, it's just going to be a little film about people sort of, I guess, looper style, where it's not big, giant booms and all that stuff. It's more like definitely the story going. So, yeah, I'd get uh, I'd get that dude to do it. I would compare, I think, instead of looper, um, because there is a Rick. lot of action in looper, I would say what you're describing is more, is more is more Gattaca. Gattaca, sure. Gattaca. Yeah, Andrew Nichol would be a good director for Florida. Yeah. yeah. Well, that wouldn't be bad. I mean, that that works. Yeah. Uh, Anthony. I I'm going to go. Oh, you know, I did. I'm, I'm going with the miniseries, man. And I actually disagree. I think, I, I think if you can show more of this world and more of the relationships between the people through a couple episodes at, at like a half an hour, it will make that arc and that journey much more of a payoff by the end. You know, it's a visual <laughs> medium, guys. Dialogue is important. <laughs> Dialogue, Dialogue is fucking important. As a writer. <laughs> Dialogue is important to this one because so much of it is character interactions and it's going to be the subtleties of the this world to that world. Can you do that with a look? You could. And I, I would agree with you. It needs to be both. I, I would agree that, and the reason why I brought up the Gattaca comparison is that Gattaca is a, is a science fiction movie that has very little special effects in it. And yeah. a lot of it is done with mood and tone, and 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 I think um, words, lots of and, words, and it yeah, lots of words, and and um, I think Gattaca works. I like that movie a lot, and I think one of the I think that's kind of the approach that you take with with Full of My Tears is you do it subtle, and one thing you can do in the miniseries is that you can build up the police state stuff in a way that where you started off really subtle and milk toast like it is in, in the novel. And then if you do want to do like kind of more of an actiony ending, then, then at that, that kind of wraps up the arc mm-hmm. more than you build to it. And then you have time to build. Well, to yeah, it. because your finale has to happen with Alice dying just... and that sort of leading into the finale. Cause you can't just have the cop cruising around feeling bad about himself for an hour. I do you definitely it. have to have a flip flap chase. I just right? wanna I just wanna point out that just we're kidding. sitting here talking about subtlety in a book where in the first like twenty pages a dude gets gets like injured by a, getting a fucking alien attached to his chest. So everybody right. just everybody just keep your like it needs to be subtlety, okay? It could be a little strange. Yeah. No, strange true. is fine. Like moon. All right, that's it. That was Moon is strange. That's yeah. the sort of level I'm talking about of of, of film, you know. Oh, yeah, he would be uh, Bowie's son. Uh, Duncan Jones would be a good director for that, too. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Big recommend on mute, y'all, still. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're the, the mute uh, fan society. because Basically, it's, it's just us. Like us and Carrie, that's it. That's <laughs> the only people that like to mute. <laughs> I love well, that. Speaking movie. of past PKD suggestions, is that our oh, next? Yeah, 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 yeah. That yeah, was yeah. Dick-like uh, suggestions. Yeah. We should see if Duncan Jones will come on the show just because we loved mute yeah, right. <laughs> yeah um all right so uh dick like suggestions um anthony you got anything this month yeah so last weekend we went to las vegas and we ended up going to this art installation that uh meow wolf is doing called omega mart 
which is this really cool, like, they built up this, like, weird kind of grocery store with a bunch of, like, weird products everywhere, and it's a little strange, and it's a little kind of, like, sci-fi-y. But then what I didn't realize, because I didn't read anything about it, is there are these back entryways into this entirely expansive back area, which has got all this crazy interactive artwork. There's, like, cool simulations of things. It's it's super strange. We spent, like, three hours in there. Where, and if where is it at? My, uh, Las Vegas. No, uh, like, is it in a in one of the casinos, or is it oh, okay. just its, it's own in site? This, it's, it's in this big thing called Area 15, which has, like, a really great restaurant. It's got VR experiences. Huh. It's got a barcade. It's, it's got all these other cool kind of on, things. On the on. strip? It, it, no, it's, it's off the strip. Oh, okay. Cool. And it, it might be a little more in line with things like Blade Runner and Altered Carbon, but just the weird, like, like shift from reality from the grocery store portion to the, the back area I thought was really cool and surreal. Oh. Um, and if you're, interested, if you're interested in seeing any of what it looks like, you can follow my Instagram because I've been posting it all week. Hmm. Um, which yeah, is, the pictures are cool. Yeah, which is Anthony underscore Trevino, T-R-E-V-I-N-O 976. Uh, Anthony, I'm really proud of you, son. Thanks. I'm really proud of you. <laughs> Thanks. For I not know. only having a, di- a dick-like suggestion, but a really good and interesting one. So thank you. Yeah. Kudos, man. And this mug is bigger, is almost bigger than my hand. So. Um, it's huge, by the way. Huge. <laughs> all right, I'm gonna go next, and then let Larry close it out. Um, I have uh, two short ones. Um, one is a uh, film of uh, the 2011 Michael Shannon joint Take Shelter, mm. uh, which we rewatched this week. And um, it is a art house horror film about schizophrenia and paranoia. And um, a fuck anyone who doesn't think it's a horror movie <laughs> um, because it is a horror movie. And yeah. And uh, Michael Shannon is incredible in it. And it's um, one of the most terrifying scenes is just a scene where he talks to his mother and, and you, you should see it. Um, and then the other one is I just finished reading a novel by Rivers Solomon. Uh, they are non-binary author from England who uh, writes science fiction, horror and fantasy and this new novel, Sour, uh, or, um, I was about to say it, Sor- Sorrowland, is um, just a really incredible novel, coming-of-age horror, science fiction, fantasy novel that's kind of like a superhero origin story, but it, uh, what I think is dick-like about it is it really kind of very subtly deconstructs society. So, hmm. um and it's the story of break a, that, yeah break that down a little <laughs> yeah so the main character is a woman a woman named Vern who's eight who's 15 years old and pregnant and escapes from a black panther compound called the the sons of Cain or something like that and they have this compound where they're living outside of the grid of society and mm. she escapes and gives birth to twins and raises them um, off the grid in the wild. And then... So like Hannah, kind of. The... 
Yes. Yeah, actually, but a way weirder. Um, and then, um, and then basically it's kind of brought, uh, finds their, they find their way back to society. And then, um, there's some, some fucked up shit that was going on that was even worse and weirder than she realized. Um, (laughs) yeah. And I don't want to give it away, but the third, the, 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 it's kind of got a superhero origin story kind of feel to it in the third act. And yeah, it's really good stuff. Um, just finished reading that. So, yep. Uh, Larry. Well, I, I mean, I really didn't have anything much coming into today because, uh, I've been playing some ordinary video games for a change. Uh, but I will say Moon. I mean, like, how have we not said that one yet? Yeah, it's all about, weird. like, what what is real, who is human, what, all that kind of stuff. And uh, maybe you can find a dub that doesn't have Kevin Spacey's voice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that adds a different creepiness to, to Moon. Yeah, right. That adds a whole new level of creepy in there. Great soundtrack for writing, too. All right. Well, um, on that note, uh, our next book is finally... Oh, shit. What, what was it? Confessions of a Crap Artist. So we're finally getting to one of PKD's attempts at literary fiction, which finally got published in 1975. So we're going to get to the year 1975 next. And again, this is one that uh, I read around the same time I read Flow My Tears. And uh, as I recall, I really loved it. It's one, of my, it's one of my favorites. But we'll see. We'll see. Maybe I'll think it's Well, crap. Larry. You never know. Rolling Stone <laughs> called artist. it a funny, horribly accurate portrait of a life in California in the 50s. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't is even that, remember that about it. So is that all the teas we're getting? <laughs> no, I'm just waiting for you guys to tell me uh, action. <laughs> yeah, go for and it. And go. Jack Isidore doesn't see the world like most people. According to his brother-in-law, Charlie, he's a crap artist, obsessed with his own bizarre theories and ideas, which he fanatically records in his many notebooks. He's so grossly unequipped for real life that his sister and brother-in-law feel compelled to rescue him from it. But while Faye and Charlie Hume put on a happy face for the world, they prove to be just as sealed off from reality, enthralled to obsessions that are slightly more acceptable than Jack's, but a great deal uglier. Their constant fighting and betrayals threaten their own marriage and the relationships of everyone around them. When they bring Jack into their home, he finds himself in the middle of a maelstrom of suburban angst from which he might not be able to escape. And Anthony is already bored. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Why do you I'm just hate kidding. Actually, people. Oh, wait. Yeah, never mind. No, I know just, the answer to that I'm one. Just, I'm just <laughs> kidding. It actually sounds like an interesting uh, PKD take on conspiracy theorists, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, as I recall, I, I you know, it was awesome. Uh, but we also have the movie, so we'll be we'll be doing an episode on that after the book. So let's uh, let's, let's wrap it up. Let's wrap this up. Uh, Flow my tears, great um, classic novel, and and um, split opinions for- just like it should be. Yeah, and if you listen to us this long, then uh, stay paranoid. Be all paranoid and shit. Goodbye.